Temp check. What kind of summer are we having this year? A family road trip summer? A beach bum summer? Or a wake me up when the sun sets summer? With Instacart, choose your own adventure and skip the shopping side quests. Where available, you can get ice cream delivered to your hotel, sunscreen to the pool, or cold brew to your bed. Well, door. In as fast as 30 minutes. Wherever you find yourself this summer, you can get the goods. Download Instacart for free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're so glad you're here. As always, my name is Lauren Ash, and as always, I am joined by my co-hostess with the most S, Christy Oxborough. How you doing? I'm here. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I, <laughs> I'm, I'm fine. I, which is about as... I, it's fine. I I spent... We're recording this a little bit later in the week than we normally would. <laughs> And so I I spent my day uh, <laughs> laying in bed watching documentaries for the next episode, and it's horrifying. So I got deeper in that bed. <laughs> Further yeah. it went. So I spent a day with, like, deep, deep, dark death. So that's where I'm at mentally. Yeah. Well, listen, I am I have not been in bed with deep dark death, thank God. Um, but I am teetering on the edge of just I, I, I said before we started, it's like have, have dear listeners, have you ever been to a point where you're just so frazzled, not upset, not mad, not not sad, not nothing, just frazzled. That you could just burst into tears at any second, like if you laugh too hard or like anything, because that's where I'm at. I've just had a, I've had a string of days that were built to push. You remember the book of Job? (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. (laughs) 
I use that only in that it's like, I feel like, you know, it was like, I've just been in such a great place. I've been in such a great mood, yeah. feeling feeling great. Yeah. And it was like anything that was happening, I was like, can't get me down. No problemo. <laughs> you know? And then it was like, because I made that choice, the universe was just like, we'll break her. <laughs> We'll just we'll just keep going until we break her. Yeah. That's what it feels like anyway. Yeah. Um I uh I drive a shitty car. I've driven the same car for eight years. Uh it's beat up. I never get it fixed because my whole thing is like, I don't care. Um, uh, not as an aesthetics gal in that department. Um and I in LA, you people hit you like if you're parked somewhere, you can come out of a store and then be like, well, there's another dent. You know what I mean? It's so it's just like for me, I've always just been of the mind that it was like, I'll just leave it. And uh, and I also have always said I've never had a problem with my car, never had a problem with it. And I was like, I'm just going to drive it until I have a problem with it and then I'll assess. And so I was driving the other day, you know, bopping along and I'm stopped and there's a gentleman uh, in front of me. I was just going to say, I don't know if he listens to the show. I hope. <laughs> what would the chances be? What would the chances be? Anyway, <laughs> neither here nor there. Um, I was stopped behind him and yeah. he pulled out to turn left. So I pulled out to turn right. We weren't at a light, you know. Sure. Um, and as I kind of pulled out to turn right, he he put on his brakes. So I I was like, oh, shoot, I don't know if I'm going to be able to fit through. And then he slammed it in reverse and backed into me, hit me. But, you know, honestly, I was just like, ah, <laughs> I was like, who cares? Shitty car, no big deal. He was obviously very frazzled. And I was just like, I, it was basically, I was just like, hey, man, you hit the right person. Like, I was like, ah, we'll figure it out. No big deal. Like, it's a, it, it was a little dent. He wasn't going super fast. No problem. So I don't think anything more of it. And then like a couple days later, I just had so beautifully orchestrated my day. I had just like, like a symphony. It was like we started in the, the, you know, in the pretty part and then we were raising up to the crescendo and then it was coming back down. Like I had just really kind of constructed something beautiful and my car didn't start that morning. And I don't think it's related to being hit. I mean, can if somebody backs into your driver's side door, can that make your engine stop working? I don't think so. I don't think so. I, I think, think that so. was just your car's moment of like, I've had it. <laughs> please kill me. Mother, please put me out of my misery. Yeah. Um, and so anyway, but it was one of those things where it was quarter to noon. And I know that the rental car places here close. They all close at noon or one on Saturdays. And I was like, shoot, I got to get a car booked. And then I start to look, and let me tell you something, dear listeners, I don't know if other people have experienced this or not, but there is a shortage on rental cars. If we thought the nationwide shortage on Pimo Benden was a problem, let me tell you, the only thing that rivals that is the nationwide shortage on rental cars. As a quick aside, I found a new supplier, not an illegal supplier, that sounded illegal. <laughs> I found a new pharmacy, uh, and I've been getting my Pimo Benden uh, recently. God. Thank you to everyone who reached out. People were so sweet and kind, uh, very concerned about, about me getting that for Fox, which I appreciate. But anyway, so I'm only able to find one place that I'm even close to that even has any cars. So I'm, I'm calling an Uber. I'm I'm doing the, the rental on my phone. I get in the Uber. I get there and I'm like, okay, I've, I'm just in the nick of time. And there's a line out the door of this rental place. 
okay, fine. So I get into the line again. Nobody gonna break my stride. Right. I was just like, this is it. Like, I, it's fine. It's a sunny day. There's no problem. And he's helping people, the guy working and he's in a bit of a mood, but I was just like, am I gonna hold me down? Oh no. Well, oh yes. Uh, <laughs> and I finally, he comes to me. I've been there like 20 minutes. I've said nothing. Cause I'm like, I'm not going to make your day harder, man. I, I'm not, I'm too blessed to be stressed. And he goes, you have a reservation? Yeah. What's your last name? Ash. You made this a half an hour ago. Y- yeah. Well, I don't have a car for you. Oh, okay. Um, you, you don't have anything? In, is it just in that, that car class? Like, do you have anything in that? I don't have any cars. Okay. So, sir, why don't you just cancel the reservation for me? No point. You can just leave. Oh, that's multiple levels of uncalled for. And guess what? I've been charged for the extra insurance, and I have not had time to call and try and get it refunded. So that's the other joke, is that he, if he had, if he had just canceled it, then on on his end, then I'm sure I would have not been charged. But I was. $60, I think. Nobody gonna break my stride. (laughs) I'm like, listen, it's gonna be fine. I'll just find another one on my phone. So at this point, it's 1235. And I'm like, surely there's there's another one nearby that's open till one. Now, here's the other problem. Ubers are hard to come by. There's very long wait times now, and they are incredibly expensive. But at this point, I'm not worried about the cost. I just got to get wheels because I need wheels for this whole week. This whole week is very, very busy for me. And, um... So I can't get an Uber that's going to get to me and then get me there quick enough. But I look on my map and I'm like, it's a 25 minute walk and I have 25 minutes to get there. Surely I can do it. Nobody's going to slow me down. Oh, no. So I start to hoof it just like as fast as I can. My, my little legs will carry me. And I'm trying to do the, the the reservation, whatever. And then as this is happening, so again, like I'm hoofing it along the sidewalk and I, I've got my phone going, whatever. A car pulls over and is like, hey, you lost? You need some help? And I was like, no, I'm fine. And then I look down and I realize that I'm in like a, a tiny crop top and a baggy sweatpant. Long story short, I look hot. <laughs> and I was like, I can't also. And then I just went, you know what? That'll do, pig. <laughs> That'll do. And I just was like, shut it down. There's no way you're going to get there in time. Even if you do, who's to know if they're going to have a car for you? I find, and, then, and then, like an oasis, I see an Enterprise rent a car. Like a beacon in the night. And then that song comes back up loud again, crescendoing. And I, I run over there, and it was, of course, closed. It, it said that it was open till one. No, it had closed at noon. Long story short, too late. Called an Uber. Uh, took that back home. And just gave up. <laughs> just gave up for that day. Yeah. Just gave up. And then it took three days. It took, or, or sorry, well, so then it was Monday, that um, which was yesterday, uh, that I was actually able to get a rental car. But they only had one SUV and then a, a myriad of trucks. And there was a part of me that was like, get the pickup truck. <laughs> and I was like, no. Yeah. No, just take the take the SUV. Take the SUV. It's like a little like hybrid one. Like it's sure. It's like don't don't start biting off. Don't start writing checks that your body can't cash. You know what I'm saying? I would like you to get the biggest truck and find the vehicle of the man who works at the first place you went to, and then 
whoops, <laughs> you know, see what happens. Yeah, they'll be like, you can use the insurance you charged me for. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so, it, and then listen, and then, it, I mean, there's a bunch of other things that are not nearly as uh, amusing or funny that have happened. Um, but yeah, that's that's where we started. So it's just been, again, not upsetting, not not, you know, well, I guess some people would find it upsetting or angering. I, I guess for me, just uh, trying would be my word. Yeah. Trying. Yeah. You've been pushed. When you, I've been pushed when I've just been really trying to, like, be positive, you know? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I there are so many things. How on earth does a rental car place in L.A. where you kind of have to use a car close that early on a weekend they uh, they always do i don't know if it's like this in other places or not but here now granted if it was like an airport one i bet you they'd probably be open 24 hours a day sure even on the weekends but yeah any other ones and i could have gone to like the burbank airport which isn't super far but but it was one of those things where (laughs) i just had to at some point give up and maybe that's the lesson Maybe that's the lesson, which is sometimes somebody's going to break your stride. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? You've got to take a nap. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You've got to stop moving. Yeah. 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 I think maybe that's what it is, is that sometimes it's like, you know, even best intentions. Even best intentions. The universe was just like, I said, stay down. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it did. Kudos it did. to you because somebody, even just making a small dent in my car, I would have been like Keanu in Point Break, <laughs> laying on my back, shooting a gun into the air, screaming. Like I would have been beside myself. So kudos to you for just being like, no bigs, we're cool. Move on with my life. I I don't. <laughs> I don't think he knew what to do with me at all. Like, I, 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 he was like, I'm so sorry. And I was like, oh, that's all right, buddy. <laughs> it was just like, it was a split second. These things happen. I mean, he was 110% in the wrong, but I stand by that it was like, you know, what do I get out of, I guess I just, yeah, I guess for me, it was just like, if it were me and I did that, I never would. But if I had... <laughs> You know what I mean? I just wouldn't want someone to yell at me. So I was like, I'm not going to yell at him. It's just not worth it. Now, I, granted, I when I inevitably, if he was a listener of the show, he would have gone, oh, my God. <laughs> because he would have well, realized it, it. I mean, it's always hard to know because I, I didn't have my mask on because because we were in driving. And, and then I sure. it was just in the moment I stepped out. We both stepped out like it was not like uh, and we were outside. Um, but it is always those moments also where I was like. If they're also, that's the other thing. I was like, I don't want this person to have a story to tell. <laughs> Superstars, Lauren Ash, <laughs> raging bitch on the road. I mean, no one could say it because it's not true, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Wait. You can make money off those stories? I've got so many. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. I shouldn't have told you this. Yeah. Well, yeah. I guess my career is pretty locked in. It'll just be like unknown source. We'll all know. Well, it depends on what the story is. Oh, I get. Well, I guess we might not know because I'm gonna obviously lie for them to be negative stories. 
Right. So you'll just be like, who was this? This never happened. That bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I'm like, fame changed her. Well, podcast fame changed her. That's the thing. If I uh, if I start selling stories of you and get famous enough from it, then somebody's going to start selling stories of me. And I'm sure there are some because I I can be unpleasant at times when I'm pushed. I don't know that I've ever seen it, though. No, because you've never pushed me. <laughs> fair enough. It's fair enough. usually geared towards those who push. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. I think one of my favorite things, I was mentioned in the National Enquirer once. I don't think I've talked about this on this show. Um, when I was on Super Fun Night, which was a show with Rebel Wilson, there was a story that ran in the National Enquirer that Rebel was bullying me, <laughs> which was not true at all. And it said that she had tried to run me over with a golf cart. That's amazing. Yeah. And I was like, who who is this source? Or do they just write whatever? Like, I don't know. Either way, it was very amusing. We enjoyed it. I assume they just write whatever at this point. I think they might. Because if all I you have to do might. is go an unknown source. <laughs> being me. <laughs> then, uh, yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Then you yeah. can just say whatever you want and be like, oh, well, I can't give up my source. Exactly. It's, it's like client privilege, or, uh, you know, lawyer, lawyer, client. Yeah. Doctor, doctor, patient. All of these are the same. Yeah. I'm, I'm again, I'm spiraling. Um, what are you drinking over there? Oh, I'm barely alive. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm doing water just for hydration. Of course. And then a Coke to just bring myself back from the dead. Yeah, I've got the something I'm calling the triple crown over here. <laughs> of course, of course. I've got a tumbler of water. Yeah. I've got a can of Diet Coke that I found in the back of my fridge that I didn't know I had, and I screamed to the heavens and thanks. And then I got a black cherry white claw, because that's just the kind of day it is, you know? And so together, who knows what this is going to make, but I feel like Coke and cherry, like cherry Coke makes sense, and then again, water, to your point, so I don't, so I don't dehydrate. Yeah. And, um, you know, when my alarm goes off at 4.45 tomorrow morning, <laughs> this week was just built, it was just built poorly. Like, not built poorly, but it was just built to break me. Um, oh. Yeah. Yeah. But speaking of being unbreakable, <laughs> <laughs> that was beautiful. Thank you very much. Today's episode, we're talking, of course, about George Reeves. And if you don't know who George Reeves is, we're talking old Hollywood actor who, of course, was most well-known for playing Superman on TV. Yeah. Uh, I'm now wishing I'd attempted even a single episode uh, in my research. I don't have time (laughs) to watch the material if they're an actor. I don't have the time. I will watch, obviously, documentaries or read books that they were in, but... Well, it's interesting because on your list of sources here, I'm noticing Hollywoodland, um, which is... Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah. kidding. No. I'm uh, kidding. I liked it. I liked I, Hollywoodland. Oh, well, uh, I did too, uh, because <laughs> Ben Affleck acting suave is one of my favorite things because it's like he's so close to getting there. But just like 
can't quite grasp it. Um, but I do love him. He is charming. But I, I heard about it and was like, oh, maybe it'll be one of my movie picks one night. And then my husband had to go to bed early uh, because he had to work later. And I was like, I guess it's just a free-for-all pick. That's weird. Well, while I'm working on my notes, I guess I could put on Hollywood Land. And uh, I was drawn in. Listen, it's the reason why I pitched George Reeves originally, because I watched Hollywood Land yeah. and was it's like loosely based on it. Yeah. On this story. And I was like, we've got to do this. We've got to cover this story. Because this is this is kind of like I'm jazzed about this episode because I this is kind of like deeply in our wheelhouse. Old Hollywood, a true like whodunit, lots of twists and turns. I'm very yeah. excited. Um, and no, I was just teasing you because obviously it still connects to the case. Um, and, I had uh, genuinely know. forgotten that I'd watched it. <laughs> That's where I'm at. I my brain. I have already like normally once we've recorded it, then I can erase. Uh, to make room for the next one, but I've already started the next one. Yeah. So it's overlapped and it's weird. And uh, I think next one's going to overlap too. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. We've we'll gotten see. ourselves in an unfortunate schedule, but I'm hoping yeah. that, I'm hoping that over the course of the next, by the new year, <laughs> we'll get back. We'll get back to where we need to be. Yeah. Oh boy. It's not um, far, but feels far. A million miles away. Yeah. Million miles. Um, now, very quickly, before we we get into it, uh, obviously yeah. because he played Superman, who's your favorite superhero and why is it Batman? <laughs> Am I right? I do love Batman. I yeah. grew up on the uh, Michael Keaton Batmans. Uh, uh, I also, I it was in reruns by the time I came along, but... Uh, uh, the Adam West, oh. like classic, really corny kind of Batman. And you know what? There's just something I loved about the idea that Batman didn't have special powers. He was just like a dude with money that was like, ah, I'm just going to buy a lot of toys and then like hurt people with them. And for some reason, I was like, yeah. Because Batman's attainable. Maybe not that level of rich. But, like, Batman could be anybody with, yeah. with the right funding. Whereas, right. Peter Parker, I'm not going near a spider. No thanks. Yeah. Not that he went for it. But, but yeah. I mean, yes. I mean, Batman's always been near and dear to my heart, I guess. Yeah. I get that. Yeah. I, you know, growing up for me, it was always Spider-Man. I loved the original like 80s Spider-Man cartoon. I used to watch that every day. Yeah. Loved it. But now I got to say, controversial. Oh. I, I don't know that Spider-Man is my favorite anymore. And I think that's only because he's being portrayed younger and younger. And it makes me feel like a yep. creep. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I just feel like I don't know. I I feel like it's it's um yeah, it it was it's a different thing. I feel like even the Peter Parker from the 80s cartoon felt more like a man. He was yes. an adult man. He had a job. He was a man. He was a man. Yeah. But but now when it's like, you know, he's got a paper the, route or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm like I don't know that I can not that my love of Spider-Man has to be, you know, sexual. Um but it helps. it's not it's <laughs> 
I, you know, it wasn't that for me, uh, to be yeah. honest. I, I, I just kind of liked his powers and I liked his his story. I liked that whole thing, I guess. Yeah. But so I feel like I need to kind of switch. And then I'm like, well, then who? Well, that's the other thing. When we were younger, there wasn't a, like they existed, but there weren't like a lot of TV shows and stuff that mentioned other right. superheroes. So there was not a lot. Whereas now, oh, God, they're everywhere. Yeah. So the sky's the limit. Yeah. I mean, I'll let you say Thor. I mean, Thor was where I was kind of like, well, thank you so much. (laughs) Thor Thor was kind of where I was leaning because it feels like, you know. Because that's um, a man. That's a man. (laughs) That feels appropriate, though. That's that's appropriate. Um, Yes. uh, You know, but then also I'm like, but is Thor, you know. But are Thor and I going to have the couch banter? You know? I didn't plan and then on I'm like, talking to him. <laughs> We're different people. Um, they, yeah. But then I'm like, is it Deadpool? Oh. Yeah, yeah. You know I what get I mean? That. I get that. Because I feel like that... Deadpool and I, we would live a beautiful life together, don't you think? I think so. I think so. Is he too much of a perv? I can't remember all the details. Oh, it's bad. Like, he's he's something else, is what he is. (laughs) Uh, He's connected to Moose Jaw, though, supposedly. Or was it, or is it Regina? I don't remember. I think it's Regina. Somewhere in Saskatchewan. Um, I mean... You two would have the banter. Yeah. <laughs> I, which I love that I didn't even consider. I would also say Ant-Man uh, specifically just because it's Paul Rudd. You would, for you. Obviously. <laughs> okay, yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I, I yeah, mean, I was look, just like, oh. If you think that you and Tony Stark wouldn't have an amazing weekend That's in okay, Bali, sure. then you're and kidding you know yourself. Here's the thing. Old me is going for Deadpool, but new me needs to be going for Tony Stark. You're right. Tony Stark has the banter, but he's also got a job. (laughs) Yeah. Right? Yeah. He's set for life. He's smart. He's witty. He's going to take you to some magical island out of nowhere and just be like, he'll be like, hey, you want to go for dinner? And you'll be like, yeah. And then he'll take you. To like another country, and it's like I did not see that coming. Yeah. So, and I think the big, the big thing for me, the big headline news is, is that I hope that this is me continuing to mature out of only having crushes on the villains. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's nothing wrong with that. Well, I mean, Loki is a villain, right? Sure. Sure. That was never it, though. It was always the Joker. It was always Heath Ledger's Joker. And I know it's like, what? And then it's like, why? And it's like, because because you want to be the only one that he likes. And that's the mental illness talking. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's, that's where the work has to be done. But I, again, <laughs> I got to Deadpool. I got to Deadpool on my own. And then you helped me do an alley-oop to Tony Stark, which feels like growth. <laughs> it, it is. It is. Uh, because yeah, we can't we can't say Tom Holland because he's like ten. He's adorable, but in like a little brother, I'm your babysitter kind of way. Yeah. But like nah. 
Not in. <laughs> <laughs> Again, he's just so young. I can't. Yeah. Again, I guess they did it. I guess even Tobey Maguire felt like he was older. Even if he was playing younger, he was older at the time of those movies. So that didn't. Yeah. Tobey Maguire has looked 27 from the age of 13 (laughs) through 40. (laughs) Timeless. He's got a timeless face. I also love that this episode's about Superman and neither one of us mentioned any sort of Superman. Oh, yeah. Huh. Yeah. Well, let's get into it then. (laughs) Because you know what? We're making this Superman the star of the show. That was really well done. Listen. Look at you. For a woman fraying at the edges, not so bad. (laughs) All right. We're going to get into it. We're, of course, talking about George Reeves. In 1952, actor George Reeves gained worldwide fame for his role in The Adventures of Superman. Even when the show was canceled several years later, Reeves appeared to have it all. He was one of the most recognized actors of his generation and was just days away from getting married. But on June 16th, 1959, Reeves would be found dead from a gunshot wound in his own home. So what happened to George Reeves? The police claimed that it was a suicide and officially closed the case. But if Reeves did take his own life, then why did his fiance wait almost an hour after hearing the gunshot before calling the police? And why were there no fingerprints? found on the gun great questions i mean it only it only goes down from here i (laughs) (laughs) we're gonna go on a real ride i'll tell you that i don't remember much of what's in here great uh so we're all gonna learn together but every time i thought i was like almost done the notes Something else cropped up that I was like, huh, that's weird. Like, it just doesn't stop. So we're just going to all take this journey together, and that's just how it's going to go. I'm here for it. I'm also going to probably butcher a lot of these names, and we're just going to have to accept it. (laughs) Because that's the energy I'm bringing today. Two women. Getting by. Getting by. Helen Roberta Lesher married pharmacist Donald Carl Brewer in 1913 after they discovered that Helen was pregnant. On January 5th, 1914, she gave birth to George Kiefer Brewer in Woolstock, Iowa. Shortly after George's birth, Donald and Helen divorced, and Helen moved with her infant son to Pasadena, California. There, Helen met bank auditor Frank Joseph Bacello, and the couple married in 1919. George was given Frank's last name. And just a quick note for you, get the psychologist hat handy, because Helen is a real trip. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Frank legally adopted George in 1927, although he never told George that he was not his biological father. During the Great Depression, Frank lost his job, and after 15 years of marriage, Frank and Helen divorced. And divorce happens, it's relatively common. But what isn't common is the fact that they waited until George was away visiting relatives before they separated. And then when George returned home and asked where his father was, his mother said he'd committed suicide. 
Oh my God. Helen is troubled. <laughs> she's, wow. She's she's next level. Uh, and if that isn't horrifying enough, it wasn't until later in life that George would learn that not only was Frank still alive, but he was actually George's stepfather, not biological father. One day, uh, during his time at Pasadena Junior College, George was helping his mother do some spring cleaning when he came across a photo of a man. When he asked his mother who the man was, his mother said, Oh, that's your father! <laughs> of course, George grew up believing that Frank Basillo was his biological father, so this was a terrible way to learn otherwise. Not to mention, once again, when asked where his biological father was, Helen said he killed himself right after George was born. He did not. <laughs> but it just feels like a heavy burden to unnecessarily put on a child. <laughs> but, you know, I'm no expert. <laughs> yeah, just hang on a second. Yeah. Stop it! <laughs> They just won't stop unless I tell them to. Yep. I had to stop them from screaming. <laughs> That's a clue line. <clears throat> yes, it is an extremely heavy burden to put on a child. That is insane. Stop barking, please! <laughs> I am just trying. I'm trying. It's going great. Thanks. It's going great. <laughs> There's part of me that wants to edit this out, and then there's part of me that's like, no, it just makes so much sense. Just leave it. <laughs> yes. Okay. But yes, this is this is a huge crux of this whole thing, so we can't just yeah. brush past it. This is wild. The idea that it's like, the only answer is like, nope, it was his father, and he killed himself. Like, what? That's crazy. That not once, but twice, she told him he that, oh yeah, he killed himself. It's like, that's something else. Helen. Yeah. Something yeah. else. So she said, that she's. I'm so sorry, so she did, did she say that about both men? Yes. Oh my god. Because once he found a photo of the Oh the right, sorry, guy, yes. There was, there was like, all the barking and yes, I was, it course. was like trying to do this. Um, yeah. Yes. That's, oh yeah. I mean, what does that do? Well, again, I'm gonna save it. I'm gonna save yep. it for the end. Yep. My psychologist hat is buzzing. And of course you would know, like, being told, finding out something huge from your life was a lie so long uh he debated about maybe not really speaking with his mother but then she told him she was only 16 when she had him uh so he kind of felt sympathy for her and kept her in his life but based on my sleuthing and helen's publicly listed date of birth helen would have been 20 at the time of george's birth not 16, and while some of Helen's parenting choices were questionable, she was very, very overprotective of George. In high school, George took up boxing. By the time he was 20, his record included 31 wins, no losses. But Helen, being very overprotective, told George, quote, you have too pretty a face to keep doing this. So he did as he was told. He let go of boxing and took classes at Pasadena Community Playhouse. He started at the Playhouse in 1935 and remained there for five years, becoming a Shakespearean actor. 
It was at the Playhouse that he discovered he was discovered by Hollywood casting director Maxwell Arno. On June 20th, 1939, George signed a contract with Warner Brothers Studios, agreeing to let the studio dye his hair in exchange for playing Stuart Tarleton in Gone with the Wind. The role would earn him $108.34, which is equivalent to just over $2,100 in 2021. The contract also gave the studio the right to choose George's stage name, which led to the birth of George Reeves. George continued to get bit parts in numerous other movies, but was often uncredited. In 1939 and 1940, George was involved in 20 feature-length films and was uncredited in eight of them, including the 1940 movie The Fighting 69th, in which George auditioned for the part that eventually went to James Cagney, which, while George was left with an uncredited role. Then there was the 1939 movie Smashing the Money Ring, in which George was uncredited as a trial spectator, while the part he originally auditioned for went to Ronald Reagan. (laughs) Yes! Wow! 40th President of the United States, Ronald Reagan. And I can't think of Ronald Reagan without thinking of Spitting Image. It was described as a British satirical puppet show, and it ran from 1984 to 1996. During my research on Princess Diana, I read that she loved Spitting Image for all the jokes they made about the royal family, which, God, that makes me love her more. Uh, I don't remember much from the show, but I have vivid memories of watching the music video for Land of Confusion by Genesis, which was done in like a similar style. I don't know why, but I watched it repeatedly. It turns out I was an odd child. (laughs) That's fine. And since I fully derailed us uh, without even having the decency to make it a side note, I'm going to rectify that with a British TV shows that Christy loves side note. Why? I don't know. We're already on this path and we just have to see it through. (laughs) That's the thing. When she gets sidetracked, just pretend it's like a bear attack. Just fetal position and wait till (laughs) ride the storm out and then you're you're just you're better for it. Or like uh, Cousin Eddie's dog. It's best to just let him finish. Let him finish. (laughs) You got a Mississippi leg hound in him. (laughs) If anyone was going to get it, I knew you would. Thank you. Uh, I love that I just literally list. uh... (laughs) (laughs) You're just listing British shows you like? Uh, Basically, (laughs) it turns out. uh, Great British Bake Off and Mr. Bean go without saying. Of course. Obviously. But also, Miranda, trolleyed, keeping up appearances, being human, catastrophe, good omens, Sherlock, killing Eve, shout out Jodie Comer, I love her, and are you being served? Mr. Humphreys, are you free? Is gold, and I don't care who you are, because, come on, I was obsessed with that show at too young of an age, which oh, is my so was MO. I. So was I. Looking back at that. Yeah. Uh, And I know my list is small compared to the content that is offered. And no, I have not seen The Crown, and I have not seen Bridgerton, and yes, it eats me alive every day. (laughs) So just no. Back to George Reeves. (laughs) I'd also like to give a quick shout out to the British show Pulling. Yes. Yeah. 
I loved pulling. I also love that I could have just, I, I should have written into the side note a section for like, and you back to you, Lauren. Oh, you know? no, it, I didn't also need to do that. I, I don't know why I, why did I need it? I'm here too? I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't literally know. wrote in my notes about a man who was not British, <laughs> stuff about British people, because I, mentally, I've been on another plane for a few weeks now, and I don't think it's going to change anytime yeah. soon. Well, guess what? Uh, move over, because you got a new seatmate. <laughs> I... Could not be more honored. I'll take it. Bless. Bless it. So back to George Reeves. Yeah. During his time at the Pasadena Playhouse, George met actress Eleonora Needles. The couple married September 21st, 1940. George then got roles in The Strawberry Blonde, Till We Meet Again, and Pony Express Days. Then in 1943, he landed his first starring role in So Proudly We Hail, a movie in which George played a wounded World War II soldier who falls in love with a nurse who cares for him. The movie was a box office hit and could have really put George on the map in Hollywood. However, George was so affected by filming the movie, he decided to change career paths. George said, quote, I couldn't get it out of my mind. So in 1943, he enlisted in the United States Army under his legal name, hoping to be treated like any other soldier. And it worked for a while until a fellow soldier saw a movie that George was in. George was then assigned to the Entertainment Division of the Army Air Corps, where he performed in a Broadway show called Winged Victory. After a few years, George was transferred to the Army Air Force's first motion picture unit, where he made training films. And that's when I learned the Army had an entertainment corps. Huh. Yeah. George was discharged in 1946, and he headed back to Hollywood. Unfortunately for George, Hollywood had drastically changed since he left. A lot of studios had slowed down their production schedules, while others had shut down completely. And director-producer Mark Sandrich, who had once promised to make George a star, had died while George was away, so now he had to start over completely. Up to that point, George had been under contract with three major movie studios, but all had since released him. George ended up doing a lot of B-movies, but the roles were few and far between, so George took up a job digging cesspools to make ends meet. A cesspool is either an underground tank or pit that acts as a temporary storage for sewage. And how did that come about? Well, apparently one day he noticed his plumbing had backed up, so he called someone to handle it. They told him it would cost $150, but since George wasn't making money at the time, he offered to help with the work in order to cut 20 bucks off the price. After working on it for a week, he learned enough about cesspools that when his neighbor needed a new one, George offered to do it himself for 100 bucks. And while he waited on acting roles to keep coming, he just kept digging cesspools. He said, quote, I'm not worrying. More and more people are moving out our way, and they all need cesspools. I, I, like, okay. that, I like that it was like, oh, this isn't working. I'll do this for now. It makes me think of, uh, was it in Playing by Heart, Ellen Burstyn and Jay Moore? 
uh, he's he's her son and he's dying, and she makes a comment about his dad being in the funeral business. And she said it was a good business. We always wanted you to go in and into it because we knew people are always going to die. And I was like, oh, that makes sense. Shout yeah. out Ellen Burstyn because I can. Yeah. <laughs> She's yep. never going to hear this, but well, I love that. If she never was say like never. a true crime buff, who knows? Never say never. Uh, in the summer of 1949, George moved to New York, hoping to be cast in a Broadway show. And while he was cast in a few radio programs and some live TV dramas, it was not the kind of starring roles that George had hoped for. So not only was his career not going as planned, then things started to take a turn in his marriage. According to George's wife, Eleonora, the two had a good marriage for much of the time they were together, and she had nothing but positive things to say about George. However, after George lost some money on an investment, Eleonora left him when a richer man came along. The couple divorced October 16th, 1950, and George never spoke of her again. <laughs> George returned to Hollywood in April 1951 to film a supporting role in the movie Rancho Notorious, which was then followed by another small role in Bugles in the Afternoon. But Hollywood hadn't changed much since George returned from the war years earlier. There was a recession which forced some studios to let go of even their biggest stars in order to save money. It started to become clear that maybe George was in the wrong business. Enter Tony Mannix. Born Camille Bernice Frumes on February 19, 1906, she was an actress and dancer in the old-timey movies known as Talkies. She changed her name to Tony Lanier and became a showgirl in the Ziegfeld Follies, a series of Broadway productions that involved chorus girls known as the Ziegfeld Girls going up and down flights of stairs dressed in elaborate costumes like birds or battleships of all the things you could have said is the second example <laughs> not know. in a million years i know right the ziegfeld follies ran from 1907 to 1931 during her time as a ziegfeld girl tony met mgm studio vice president and movie producer eddie mannix who was 15 years her senior tony and eddie became involved even though Eddie was married at the time. Ooh. Eddie married Bernice Fitzmorris in 1916, and despite Eddie having numerous affairs throughout their marriage, the couple remained married due to their Catholic beliefs. Mm. It is said that in late 1937, Bernice petitioned for divorce, citing Eddie's affairs and alleged physical abuse. But before the divorce was officially filed, Bernice was killed in a car accident November 18, 1937, near Palm Springs, California. Shortly, shortly after Bernice's death, Tony moved in with Eddie. Some say they were married right away. Others say they weren't married until May 31, 1951. Some have also speculated that they never got legally married at all. But we know for sure that Tony and Eddie lived together as husband and wife whether common law or not, from 1937 until Eddie's death in 1963. Something worth noting about Eddie Mannix, he worked for MGM, or Metro, Metro Goldwyn Mayer Studios, 
that was unnecessary, uh, which was the biggest studio at the time. Its back lot sat on more than 176 acres and was home to 200 buildings, including a variety of sets, but also things like a barbershop and a dentist. The studio also had its own police force, as well as people who were known as fixers. They were paid to do whatever it took to help maintain the pristine public image of the studio's biggest stars, even when the stars' personal lives were anything but pristine. Eddie Mannix was one of those fixers, and he fixed everything from forced abortions to sham marriages and even a few unsolved murders. Wow. In a Vanity Fair article written by David Stein, he alleges that Eddie even made a rape charge disappear, even after the victim took her case directly to the district attorney. The numerous stories of fixing in Hollywood is alarming. Eddie, along with another studio fixer named Howard Strickling, allegedly helped to hide Spencer Tracy's alcoholism from the public. In fact, there was an entire team meant to deal with Spencer's drinking. The Tracy squad included a doctor, a driver, and four security guards. So whenever Spencer Tracy got embarrassingly drunk at a bar, the squad would step in and the movie-going public would never find out about it. The fixers also allegedly helped to keep Spencer Tracy's relationship with 14-year-old Judy Garland a secret. Ah. As well as the fact that Clark Gable allegedly killed a pedestrian while drunk driving. Wow. <laughs> yep. And while the fixers were known to sweep pretty much anything under the rug, they also didn't take any guff. If there were stars who were particularly difficult, they'd just get rid of them. One particular actor, who was closeted at the time, was initially set up in a sham marriage to protect his secret. But once the actor started causing problems for the studio, the Fixers had an article published about him that heavily implied that the actor might be gay. And since this all went down in 1933, and people were far less evolved at the time than we are now, the scandal led to the actor being fired. Which leads me to a... So wild, how is this real? Side note. So something else that Eddie and Howard fixed uh, involved actress Loretta Young. Allegedly, Loretta worked with Clark Gable on the movie The Call of the Wild. During filming, Gable, who was married at the time, allegedly raped Loretta and she became pregnant. But due to her religious beliefs, Loretta refused to get an abortion. So the press were told Loretta went on a vacation. And then they were told she was very ill, when in reality, she went off and had the baby in secret. After the baby was born, the baby spent months living with someone hired by the studio before being placed in an orphanage. About a year later, uh, Loretta publicly announced that she would be adopting two children. However, it turned out that the mother of this Second biological child magically showed up out of nowhere and took her child back. So I guess she's just going to adopt the one child after all. And oh, it was her own child. Uh, so Loretta finally admitted to her daughter in 1966 that you are my real child. <laughs> You've just thought you were adopted all along. Oh, it was a very long ruse 
so that no one would know she was an unwed pregnant woman. Oh, boy. It's the fact that they couldn't just go, she's going to adopt a child. It was, I'm going to adopt two. And then, oh, well, I can't adopt this one because the mother came back. So I guess I'll just adopt one. Uh-huh. The fact but that also, people bought it. Well, the fact that people bought it, but also, like, why did they have to wait so long? Like, why didn't they do that when the baby was first born? Why did it have to spend time in an orphanage? There's so many questions. It's weird. I also, but also I love that it was like the idea of her being pregnant out of wedlock destroy her career. Her being a single woman working and then adopting a child. Oh, they'll love that. It's like, will they? She would like, just, just let her keep the child. I, I'm so happy we've come at least a ways from that. Yeah. Uh, these fixers also allegedly arranged for abortions for actresses such as Lana Turner, Jean Harlow, and Judy Garland. It's also believed that Eddie Mannix may have been involved in the death of Paul Byrne, who mysteriously died just two months after marrying Jean Harlow. Eddie's life was the loose inspiration for the Coen Brothers' 2016 film Hail Caesar, which stars Josh Brolin as Eddie Mannix. Blanche would like it noted the movie also includes George Clooney and Channing, Channing Tatum. And Christy <laughs> would like to mention David Krumholtz because I can't hear his name without immediately thinking, prophylactic? Can I get a prophylactic? That was a 10 <laughs> Things I Hate About You reference for the dear listeners who have no idea what I'm talking about. I could quote that movie until the end of time. Same. So in 1950, 44-year-old Tony became smitten with 36-year-old George Reeves. After a chance meeting at a club, the two started a relationship. And while it shocked the Hollywood elite, since Tony was known as Eddie's wife at the time, not only did Eddie know about the affair, he also fully supported it. Eddie, who was no stranger to affairs himself, was known for taking advantage of any would-be actress who hoped that dating Eddie would make them a star. Tony and George would even go on double dates with Eddie and his various mistresses and travel with them, although when it came to travel, Eddie and Tony always got first class and George and Eddie's girl of the moment would be relegated to coach. Oh my god. Although it has been said... That around the time that uh, Eddie and Tony met, Eddie's health was so poor, he had to limit himself to just one mistress at a time. Uh, and at the time, he was dating a young Japanese woman who lived with them. The weirdness of, like, this is something I love about old school Hollywood is like, they were so much further ahead mentally, but also so much further behind. Like, there's just, they didn't have set things. Like, it was like, well, we're married, but my girlfriend's also going to live with us. And it was like, okay, cool. I'm only going to briefly not live with you while I live with my boyfriend, but then I'll come back. Like, it's the layers. Yeah. The layers. Yeah. Again, this, yeah. I mean, there's, this is now, I feel like many people are, are living those kinds of situations, which is, it's just yeah. wild that it was happening in the 40s. 30s, oh, 40s, God, 50s. Yeah. And to be clear, yeah. I could never. My jealousy would seethe. I couldn't do it. It would eat me alive. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, listen, I I wish anybody well when all parties are are happy and yeah. they enjoy that situation and that works for them. Good on you. Go go have your boyfriends and your girlfriends and your husbands and wives yeah. and your people. Um great. We come from a different time. And I know that sounds so funny, but I feel like a lot of people from our generation, I've talked to other people from our our era too. A lot of people from our generation are just like, I don't know that I could do it. I know men from our generation who have cheated, who have said, well, I could never be in an open relationship. You know what I mean? Like it's, there's something about like, People who grew up in the 90s, we're, we've, there's weirdness to us. We're, we're <laughs> especially broken. Yeah. yeah, we're very broken. We're repressed in many ways. Yeah. We're like just desperate for love. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. know, if when you, you get watch it, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air after school, yep, you have some issues with love. <laughs> yep. Yep. And it's like when we find it, we just want to hold on so tight <laughs> We can't, the idea of yeah. sharing it and, and loving and being loved by multiple people feels impossible. Uh, yeah. But again, no judgment is my point. No, if it I, works I, for you and no one's getting hurt. I admire it. But yeah. yeah, again, I do think it's a generational thing though. For Not for everybody, but again, I feel like the next generation are the ones who are like really far more evolved than we are. And like, what's the problem? You square? I hope that, I hope that's how they that talk. It comes too. back. I hope yep. that me too. Being a square comes me back. Me too. Yep. Yep. Uh, but despite this whole weird situation, Tony was deeply in love with George, and she showered him with expensive gifts, including clothes, vacations, a car, a pocket watch that was inscribed with "Mad about the boy," because the boy was what she nicknamed him. He just tended to call her Mama Tony. Nope. Which <laughs> she's not that much older than him. Eight years. I mean, it's not like it's not like she was like 30 years older than him. Like, come on. Yeah. I just. Nope. I don't want to hear a, a man that I may be intimate with ever refer to me as mom or mama or no thanks. What if it was A.C. Slater? You know I'm more of a preppy girl. Of course, but I'm yeah. saying it's a valid question. I think he's the only, not not Mario Lopez, the character A.C. Slater. <laughs> the kid whose football jersey they used to wrap around Belding's new baby. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If um, he was an adult man. If he was an adult man. Uh, I could be swayed with a, sup, mama? Yeah. 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 Ah, See? shit. Yeah. 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 <laughs> For the jerry curl, I guess. <laughs> oh, jeez. I love it. Uh, Tony uh, also bought George a house on Benedict Canyon Drive in 1950, where George would be found dead nine years later. We will get to that. Mm -hmm. I promise you at some point we will get to it. Mm -hmm. And while Tony remained married to Eddie throughout her relationship with George, it was always understood that when Eddie died... As he was prone to heart attacks, George and Tony would get married. George started to get desperate for work, so in 1951 he auditioned for the lead role in a low-budget movie called Superman and the Mole People. The movie was meant to act as a pilot for an upcoming TV series. Superman, side note! 
While in high school, Jerry Siegel woke up in the middle of the night with the idea for Superman. The next day, his best friend, Joe Schuster, drew the characters. Detective Comics paid the boys $130 for the rights, and Superman made his action comic debut on April 18, 1938. On May 16, 1951, Flamingo Films purchased the TV rights, and five days later, a production company was formed and, a, and formed to produce a television serial. At the time, Kirk Allen, who starred in the two movie serials based on Superman, with Superman in 1948 and Adam Man vs. Superman in 1950, Kirk claims he turned down the role of a TV series because of the small paycheck but others say Kirk was never considered for the TV role. Since then, Superman has appeared in 13 movies and at least six different TV series. And that doesn't include the ton of animated stuff. Superman has also been featured in at least 29 video games, starting with an Atari game in 1979. And dear listeners, if you don't know what an Atari is, I can't help you. <laughs> It was the first system I ever played on, and the idea that you wouldn't—the idea that you would be too young. Oh, well, boy. if you don't know what an Atari is, you do know what Google is. So feel free to use it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah, kidding. That I'm would kidding. Be helpful. I'm kidding. Uh, despite landing a leading role, George was not overly jazzed about being Superman. At the time, television roles were seen as lesser than movie roles. Then there was the fact that George was forced to wear Kirk's hand-me-down costume and shoes. George was so disillusioned with the role that on the first day, he welcomed Phyllis Coates to set by raising a glass and saying, quote, Welcome to the bottom of the barrel. Oh, wow. Something worth noting at this time is that Tony would visit the Superman set every single day, always bringing George his brown paper bag lunch. Tony was said to be jealous and possessive, not allowing George to be alone with any women, including Phyllis Coates, who played Lois Lane in the first season of the show. The Adventures of Superman aired in 1951. The show started out kind of violent and a bit dark, but over time, George insisted on making the show more kid-friendly. He wanted Superman to not only entertain children, but to do so without any blood and gore. He said, quote, we even try in our scripts to give gentle messages of tolerance and to stress that a man's color and race and religious beliefs should be respected. And George even took his work home with him. He spent so much of his spare time at fundraisers for various children's charities and made dozens of public appearances, including visiting sick children as Superman. At one particular appearance at the Mambo Club, a club for underprivileged youth that George co-sponsored, organizers expected 150 children to attend. In the end, 3,000 children showed up. The police had to be called to eventually disperse the crowd. Oh, wow. George was also very concerned with his public image, choosing to quit smoking to be a better role model to the fans of the show. He said, quote, the burden is not a light one. In fact, it's a frightening responsibility. I can never go in a bar or smoke a cigarette because Superman doesn't do those things. And I can't get in arguments in public. And like champion prize fighters, I'm always beset by some character who wants to boast that he took a poke at Superman. 
1957, George did a guest star spot on an episode of I Love Lucy playing Superman. There is a photo of Lucille Ball with George in costume that I will post on our socials because there's something so charming about the way that she's looking at him. And I get it, Lucy, because same. <laughs> he was... His his mom was right about the boxing. It was it was too pretty to wreck it. Mm. Uh, but the role of Superman wasn't all positive. The role was so well known that it caused George to be typecast. George said, "Quote: You have to get used to being laughed at and have your have a laugh at yourself a little." At first, I wasn't too sure about doing the show, but any actor likes his own series, though it means identification with one character. And that identification became a problem as typecasting destroyed George's career. He filmed a small role in the movie From Here to Eternity, but test audiences laughed at his scenes as they could only see Superman. Due to the audience's reactions, his role was drastically cut down for the final film. And it wasn't just the public, it was also the media. When George got in a car accident in 1956, the headlines were... Superman is hurt like other mortals. But after 104 episodes, the show finished its run, and like all the best TV shows, The Adventures of Superman was cancelled after six seasons. I know what that's like. <laughs> <laughs> Playing Superman had begun to drag on George. The pay was low, the hours were long, and it was a far cry from the dramatic movie roles that George longed for. And while George was somewhat relieved for the show to end, the cancellation left him somewhat unemployable. No one could look at him and see anything but Superman. While the role made him incredibly famous, it also made him nearly impossible to cast. In September 1958, George headed to New York in the hopes of finding work. While there, he met socialite Leonor Lemon. Pronunciation side note! I just want to be clear, right out the gate, while some simply call her Lenore, I'm going to pronounce it Leonore, as it has been said in the movie Hollywoodland, and by Lois Lane herself, Phyllis Coates. And if it's good enough for Lois, it's good enough for me. So Leonore it is. Why at this day and age can we not agree on it is beyond me. <laughs> Mm, it just yeah. it drives me crazy. So, and the amount of times I'm probably going to read the name as Lenore throughout this, that'll be the joke. So, Leonore was 35 years old and a known party girl in New York. She made headlines for being named a correspondent in a divorce filing. And by getting banned from two Manhattan nightclubs, the Stork Club and El Morocco, for punching women. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> okay. She also eloped with a Vanderbilt heir a month after meeting him, but the marriage didn't last as she left him five days later when she found out he got arrested for passing bad checks on their honeymoon. <laughs> a month later in October, George met up with Leonor in Florida while he was on a publicity tour for The Adventures of Superman. After a two-week-long affair, George returned home and broke things off with Tony, who, I might add, had given George everything. So understandably, Tony was distraught over the breakup, 
although she did not only... Not only did she let George keep the house that she bought for him, but she also continued to pay his bills. And maybe it was all done in the faint hopes of one day winning him back, but Tony was beside herself. And we're talking crying for weeks, locking herself in her bedroom, calling George more than 20 times a day, just light stalking. Mm. And while I completely understand her devastation, after all, it was implied that George would marry her after Eddie died, George only made it worse by saying that Leonor made him feel young. Oh, at George. The time, Tony was 48 years old, uh, but being upset doesn't excuse harassment, and things got so bad that George had to file a restraining order against Tony. Mm. But worse yet, after Tony moved out of the house, the house that she bought, Leonor moved in. A year later, George and Leonor were engaged. But I'd like to point out that Leonor has been described as, quote, she wasn't the kind of girl you married. She was the kind who wanted to run your life. Oh. Allegedly, George's friends even stopped speaking to him because of his relationship with Leonor. Not only was there a concern that she was a gold digger, but George and Leonor were known for having loud, drunken arguments over pretty much anything and everything. But regardless as to what everyone else thought, George was allegedly set to marry Leonor on June 19th, 1959. And I say allegedly, because from what I can tell, George never officially confirmed the wedding. And there was a rumor reported in the Los Angeles Examiner that stated the wedding had been called off. But regardless as to whether or not the wedding was supposed to happen, the couple never made it down the aisle. George Reeves was found dead in his home from a single gunshot wound three days before the wedding was supposed to happen. He was just 45 years old. And before we get into the specific details of his death, because some think this is related I want to mention the Superman curse. Whoa. And because it turns out I might just be a curse person now. Well. A cursing? Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> My God. Uh, the curse refers to a series of misfortunes that have befell some of the people involved in any way with Superman. Some say it started with the Superman TV show, killing George's career, and then the fact that he died at a relatively young age. Others have suggested it started with the first Superman, Kirk Allen, who was also so typecast by the role that he couldn't find much work afterwards either. He did, however, end up doing voice work and made a brief cameo in Superman the movie as Lois Lane's father. Huh. Dean Cain, who starred in Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman from 1993 to 1997, was also typecast and found it difficult to get work after the series ended. And I have to say, God, I loved that show. Yeah. I loved it so much. Shout out to Terry Hatcher, Michael Landis, who played Jimmy Olsen in the first season, and Dean Cain, but like specifically... 90s Dean Kane, because I'm concerned that current Dean Kane might be problematic and I want to cover my ass in case he is. And to everyone involved in Lois and Clark, I greatly enjoyed your program. <laughs> and speaking of Terry Hatcher, she was on Desperate Housewives with James Denton, who voiced Superman in the 2011 animated film All Star Superman. James Denton 
also had a role in Face Off. And to James, I'd like to say, Ooh, you good looking. <laughs> oh, wow. That's awesome. I am so underslept. It's fine. It's I love fine. it. Uh, back to the curse. Uh, when Superman's creators heard that a Superman movie was being made in 1978, they were pissed. They felt they were owed more money as their creation was about to hit the big screen, but they were paid for the rights years before, so they didn't end up having much of a case. But Jerry Siegel wrote a scathing letter that said he cursed the movie. Oh. Christopher Reeve played Superman in that very movie, as well as three sequels between 1978 and 1987. In 1995, Christopher became paralyzed from the neck down after a horseback riding accident. He died in October 2004 at the age of 52. No autopsy was ever done, but both Christopher's doctor and Christopher's wife believed he died from a reaction to an antibiotic he was taking for a recent ulcer infection. And just 10 months later, Reeves' wife, Dana, was diagnosed with lung cancer. Dana died in March 2006, just 17 months after her husband. She was 44. Whoa. Also in the movie was Marlon Brando, who was offered $4 million, which is just over $16.8 million in 2021, plus 16% of the gross income, just to play Superman's dad. It worked out to be less than 12 days of work and eight minutes of film. After filming, Brando became a bit of a recluse, and then there was an altercation at his home. On May 16th, 1990, Brando's children, Christian and Cheyenne, were having dinner. While at dinner, Cheyenne claimed that her boyfriend had been physically abusive towards her. Christian became enraged and later that evening, while drunk, confronted Cheyenne's boyfriend, Dag Drolet. There was an argument, a gun came out, and 27-year-old Dag was killed. Christian claimed they were fighting over the gun. It accidentally went off. During the trial, prosecutors tried to charge Christian with murder, but couldn't without the testimony of Cheyenne, who was admitted to a mental health facility after the incident. Brando took the stand, and his testimony not only dragged on for an hour, but he also started it with, quote, No, I will not swear to God. <laughs> oh, boy. And at one point, he yelled at the jury to shut up. <laughs> yep. In oh. the end, Christian pleaded guilty to involuntary manslaughter and was sentenced to 10 years. He was released after five. Unfortunately, Cheyenne Brando really struggled with the death of Dag. Not only had the couple been together for four years, but at the time of his death, Cheyenne was eight months pregnant with the couple's son. Ooh. Shortly after the son's birth, Cheyenne attempted suicide twice and was admitted to a hospital where she was declared unfit to testify at her brother's trial. Cheyenne spent years in and out of mental health facilities where she was later diagnosed with schizophrenia. In April 1995, Cheyenne took her own life. She was only 25. Mm -mm. And I want to say that things don't get any sadder from here, but then that's lying. Um, another person 
linked to su- the Superman curse is Lee Quigley, who was just seven months old uh, when he played Superman as a baby in the 1978 film. Uh, Lee died from solvent abuse in 1991 at the age of 14. Another cast member from the Superman series was Margot Kidder, who played Lois Lane. In 1990, Margot injured an arm, leg, and her pelvis in a car accident. She was briefly paralyzed due to pinched nerves. Margot was left nearly bankrupt from the medical bills, which led to a major psychotic break in 1996. Margot was found confused, wandering around someone's backyard with her hair chopped off and two teeth missing. Police were called and she was taken to a hospital, but not before cameras came in and filmed the whole thing and put it on the news. While filming Superman 2, the director, Richard Donner, was fired after he had issues with the producers. When Margot expressed her feelings about Donner's firing, the producers reduced her role in Superman 3 to just 12 lines. She was on screen less than five minutes. Some include Richard Pryor in the Superman curse because it was just three years after being in Superman 3 that he was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Another reason people seem to think he's part of the curse is because his marriage was destroyed uh, after filming. But let me be clear, he wrecked his own marriage because he chose to have an affair. That has nothing to do with a curse. That just has everything to do with a cheating scumbag. (laughs) I'm saddened that the affair was with Margot Kidder because I genuinely like her. Which somehow, in the grand scheme of this wacky show, leads me to a... Canadian politics side note. (laughs) It sounds boring, but I promise you, it's not. So for our non-Canadian listeners, and for those who were too young to know, the 15th Prime Minister of Canada was Pierre Trudeau, who was the father of our current and 23rd Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. Apparently, when Pierre was first entered office in 1968, he was a well-sought-after bachelor who even dated Babs herself, Miss Barbara Streisand. Oh. Sadly, things didn't work out there. In March 1971, 51-year-old Pierre married 22-year-old Margaret Sinclair. The couple had three children, two of which were born on Christmas Day, two years apart. The oldest, born in 1971, is our country's current leader. Uh, Pierre and his wife separated in 1977. Their divorce finalized in 1984. And then, the reason that I'm bringing this up now, Pierre dated Margot Kidder. Hmm. Things didn't work out, and he ended up fathering a fourth child in 1991 at the age of 71. Not with Margot Kidder. No. Got it. Uh, So it goes to show, politics isn't always boring. There you go. Sometimes it involves just the craziest relationships you can imagine. Yeah. Uh, And because this has just been a real, real emotional roller coaster in the last bit, uh, Margot Kidder died in May 2018 from a drug and alcohol overdose. Her death was ruled a suicide. Obviously, it had nothing to do with Pierre Trudeau. I just wanted to make that. Of course. Very clear. Of course. Of I course. just love, like, I've seen photos and I just, I don't get it. But 
he was the talk of the town. Like, ladies were falling for it. So, I don't get... Again, he had a child. Like, a He was very charismatic, him. though. He was very charismatic. Uh, he also talked moistly. <laughs> yeah. That's referencing his son. It is. Many won't get that. But many should, because... That it was in the that news. That went around, right? Yeah. 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 Kind of like Pierre. No. Hello. <laughs> a good night. See ya. Good Lord. So keeping with the curse, we have the 2001 WB show Smallville starring Tom Welling as Superman. An actress from the show, Allison Mack, pleaded guilty to racketeering and racketeering conspiracy charges for her involvement in a sex trafficking ring in the Nexium cult. While Allison faced up to 40 years in prison, she was sentenced in June 2021 to three years in prison, a $20,000 fine, and 1,000 hours of community service. Her lawyers are currently trying to get her sentence reduced to no jail time. And because this curse has me going all over the place, I'm going to mention the 2006 Brandon Routh movie Superman Returns. During filming, one crew member was mugged and physically assaulted, one fell down a flight of stairs, and another was thrown through a glass window. The movie's director, Brian Singer, said, quote, My DVD crew absorbed the curse for us. What a piece of shit. <laughs> He's and also... I don't just mean for the flippant comment, but also for his alleged drugging and assaulting of a minor. But that's a story we're going to get into maybe another time. Yes. If you're interested, do a quick Google. But remember, legally speaking, I said alleged. Yes, of course. And before I end this topic, I have to mention the film that never happened. A movie called Superman Lives, directed by Tim Burton, starring Nicolas Cage. After multiple box office bombs in a row, Warner Brothers wasn't willing to take a risk on what was supposed to be a dark take on Superman. Without the studio's support, Tim Burton left and the project was inevitably shelved. Numerous people linked to any Superman movie have denied the existence of a curse, although I bet most of the people linked to Glee felt the same way. Yeah. That's in reference to our Glee Curse episode from back in August, which yes. feels like a year ago, but it wasn't. Yeah. Uh, one person who doesn't believe that the curse is real is Henry Cavill, who played Superman in Man of Steel, Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice, and Justice League. Cavill feels the incidents that are considered to be evidence of the curse are just simply a few cases of bad luck. And to that I say, Henry... You may not believe in the Superman curse, but to me, nothing is more cursed than that shitty CGI job that they did to remove your mustache from Justice League. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, talk to the talk to the production team on your film when they found out that you were under contract and they had to oh. paint out that mustache in every fucking frame. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'd say that they thought that was a bit of a, I, if not a curse, certainly a burden. Yeah. Um, I'm also oh my shocked God. that they were so like, we have to have him in this mustache. It's like, well, what? it's contractual. So it, because it was reshoots. Right. Oh, yeah. I'm just they own him. to begin with that they made that choice from out the gate, whether it was this makes him not look like Superman. Like, I don't know if that's what the thing was, but Probably. I get for the sake of reshoots, I just 
don't understand the initial thing because it's like, why do you why would you hide that with a mustache? It's not right. You know, but sometimes, I mean, I'm the wrong lady because I, I like to say like, oh, who who likes a mustache? Sometimes me. Yeah. Sometimes me. Oh, yeah, I get it. It depends on the face. I hear you. But I think you're right. I think they were trying to make him look as, as little like Superman as possible, which is the joke, making it, you know, exact, very difficult. Other than having a full beard, I don't know what would have been more difficult to, <laughs> for them to paint out in those reshoots oh. than, a, than a full mustache. My goodness. Well, listen, I, I love the twists and turns this is taking. I apologize <laughs> that my dogs had a complete meltdown during nope. this. Um, but uh, look, let's take a quick break. Grab a drink. I am going to refresh myself, hit the can, and we're going to be right back. And we're going to get into, of course, the tragic death and the mystery surrounding it of George Reeves on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Everyone has moments in life they just can't stop thinking about. Like that one time in middle school when you called your teacher mom? Yeah, that's not leaving your brain anytime soon. Or something amazing like the first time you really traveled and got to see how big and beautiful the world is. And on Baby This Is Kiki Palmer, hosted by me, Kiki Palmer, and presented by BMW, we know to savor the good memories and let go of the bad. And one thing everyone remembers fondly is their first time behind the wheel of a BMW. So come join me and BMW this summer as we explore pop culture moments and topics you just can't stop thinking about on Baby, This is Kiki Palmer, sponsored by BMW, the ultimate driving machine. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome back to the show, everybody. We are, of course, talking about George Reeves. Before the break, we were talking about so many things, uh, but the Superman curse, which is something I don't think I'd ever heard about before. But what I like is that it led us to, oh, Canada. That's always a nice treat. Um, But now, unfortunately, we're going to get away from the nice treat because we're going to talk about the death. We are. Uh, I think they've been waiting for this for the last hour plus. And uh, congratulations. We got there. We are, of course, talking June 16th, 1959. I have done my best to piece together everything. There were only a handful of people present that night, but their stories don't tend to match up. And it's a mess for people like me who just want the truth. So some say that George and Leonore were having a party, but others say the couple had gone out for the evening with their house guest, Robert Condon, a writer who was ghostwriting the autobiography about boxer Archie Moore. They allegedly returned to the house around 11 p.m. George, Leonore, and Robert all arrived at the Benedict Canyon home. George was apparently tired, not interested in the party, so he went to bed around 12 a.m. Around the same time, the 33-year-old neighbor... 
Carol Van Van Ronkel, arrived at the house with 45-year-old William Bliss. Carol was married, but not to William. Oh. Neither George nor Leonor had met William prior to this evening. So Carol and William show up and Leonor is up for a party. George comes downstairs yelling. He's not in a mood for a party. He allegedly tells the guests to leave, but instead stuck around for a drink, then went back upstairs around 1 a.m. A few minutes later, according to the police report, Leonor said, quote, he's going upstairs to shoot himself. And when a noise was heard from George's room, Leonor added, quote, see, he's opening a drawer to get the gun. And when a gunshot was heard, Leonor allegedly said, quote, see there, I told you, he shot himself. Leonor, of course, later insisted she was just kidding around. But when police arrived at 1.59 a.m., they found George lying naked on his bed with a gunshot wound to the right temple. The gun, a 30 caliber Luger pistol, was at his feet. He was 45 years old. William Bliss claims that after hearing the shot, he ran upstairs and found George dead. William allegedly ran downstairs and screamed, My friend is dead! My friend is dead! Which is a super weird statement for someone you literally just met an hour before? Yeah. William is also the one who called the police and the one who let them in when they arrived. According to the report written by the Beverly Hills Police Department, they claimed George was entertaining his fiancée and three others in his home when, without explanation, he just up and left the room, went upstairs, and shot himself. Now, we're going to take just like a small step back. I've read that the group who were at the house heard the gunshot and immediately ran upstairs. But I've also read that they heard the gunshot and then waited for police before going upstairs. The lack of a straight story is enraging. William Bliss, who had never met George and Leonor prior to that night, claims that Leonor was upstairs with George at the time they heard the gunshot. He also claims after the shot, Leonor ran downstairs yelling, quote, tell them I was down here. Tell them I was down here. Now, unfortunately, I don't have an autopsy report, but I have seen an alleged autopsy photo, and it looked as though there were two bruises on his face. There were also allegedly bruises on his chest. George's personal trainer claimed there were no bruises on George's body earlier that day. So without the autopsy, what details do we have? George's blood alcohol level was 0.27, which is a lot. Yeah. Uh, There is a 45-minute window between when the gunshot was heard and when the police were called. Leonor said the reason for the delay was because after the gunshot, Leonor found Carol in bed with Robert. Although some claim she was in bed with William Bliss, who is the person she arrived with, again, the inaccuracies are enraging. But regardless as to who Carol was in bed with, the point is it wasn't her husband, and Leonor claims that she gave Carol time to get dressed and leave before the police were called. You know, 
because Leonore just wanted to make sure that Carol's marriage stayed intact. Carol was cheating on her husband, but I love that Leonore was more concerned about the state of Carol's marriage than Carol was. Apparently, Carol was married to 60-year-old screenwriter Albert Rip Von, Van Ronkel. Carol, who was 25 at the time, uh, Rip didn't know about all of her affairs. And to that I say, really, Rip? You're a <laughs> 60-year-old man married to a 25-year-old party girl, and you had no clue whatsoever that she might astray. I'm not saying all people in varied age marriage or relationships do, but this girl's going out all the time, hanging out with Leonore, always at a party, and that's not a problem to you? And going out late at night, right? That's, like, she she showed up pretty late at that house. Yeah. Yeah. Again, not a clue, apparently. Uh, excuses that the other guests made for taking so long to call the police include, it was a bit late. Uh, they were really intoxicated, and they were just so shocked over George's death. And to that I say, even at the drunkest I have ever been, I think if I heard a gunshot in that moment, my immediate thought would have been to call the police and not, huh, God, do you think it's too late to call the police? That's what they're there for. They don't close like car rental places. Correct. Thank you for bringing that back around. You're welcome. Uh, I just, I feel like the excuses were flimsy at best. There were two bullet holes in the floor of George's bedroom. The bullet which killed George went through his right temple, through his left temple, and lodged itself in the ceiling. But there were also two bullet holes near the foot of George's bed. Leonore claims those particular holes were from the week before, when her and George got into an argument. The gun was only missing a single bullet, so if the holes were all made the same night, the gun would have been reloaded. I should also note that the bullet holes were allegedly created by the same gun. I cannot find confirmation as to whether or not it was the same night or not. According to a newspaper article at the time, Leonore told the police she was fooling around and accidentally fired the weapon during an argument with George the week before. At the week before. Yeah. Also worth noting, uh, sorry, nope, I went ahead. A single shell casing was found, and it was located under George's back, which is weird since the casing would have ejected from the gun in front of George, not behind, but that's assuming he was holding the gun in the usual manner. Also worth noting, there were no fingerprints found on the gun. At all. Police said each guest seemed incredibly intoxicated, and that they all seemed to have the same story for the most part including them each adding, without being asked, that George had killed himself because he was upset about being typecast as Superman. Oh. For some reason, the police didn't bother to look into the fact that two of the three guests barely knew George, so their comments were taken as gospel. Police also didn't separate the guests or interview them alone. No photos were taken of the body or the scene, despite it looking staged, apparently, uh, the scene was only glanced at. 
The funeral home picked up the body at 3.30 a.m., the same time the guests were allowed to leave the house. At 4.30 a.m., Tony allegedly called Phyllis Coates to say, quote, the boy is dead, he's been murdered. A couple of things here. One, how would Tony know that George was dead? Assuming Tony and Eddie weren't involved, Eddie was a studio exec who would have been called for something like this, so would he have heard about it early on? I don't know. And two, why did the body get picked up by a funeral home and not, say, the morgue? Yeah. George's body was taken to the Gates, Kingley, and Gates funeral home where a junior medical examiner looked at the body. Only two photographs were taken, one of the entrance wound, one of the exit wound, and then both wounds were sewn up. What? And then the body was washed. What? So not only did they wash the body before a full examination was done, but they also tampered with the wounds and took only two photos, which feels like a cover-up. Uh, yes. It was also suggested that George was embalmed before the autopsy was even finished. I could not confirm that, but if it was true, it's on board. It's on par with the, the sketchiness that we're dealing with here. The autopsy took place after the body had been thoroughly washed. I've read both that the coroner either did not test for gunshot residue on George's hands and that none was found. Without an autopsy report, I can't say for sure. I've also read that the coroner did not check the head wound for traces of gunpowder and that no gunpowder was found on his temple. Again, if I could just have 10 minutes alone with that report. On June 24th, 1959, the coroner, Theodore Curphy, announced, quote, the examination of the bones of the head and brain establishes the fact that the fatal wound was of close contact with a gun pressed against the skin, producing extensive fracturing of the skull and marked damage to the brain along the wound track. He also stated, quote, from these findings, coupled with the investigative report supplied this office by police, it is my opinion that the wound was self-inflicted. George's mother refused to believe that her son killed himself, so she had another autopsy done, and while this autopsy allegedly noticed bruising on George's face and chest, the result was the same, and George's manner of death was once again listed as suicide. But something worth noting is that at some point, shortly after this second autopsy, the two photos of the head wounds taken by the first examiner went missing. Always the way. So two coroners said that George's official manner of death was suicide. Well, for one thing, George was naked when he was found, which is incredibly rare in suicides. The lack of fingerprints on the gun, the fact that the shell casing was behind his body, the trajectory of the bullet, all of it is very sketchy to me. And while my amateur take on the evidence refuses to believe suicide, one person who believes it is George Reeves' biographer, Jim Beaver. Yes, that Jim Beaver, side note. Yes, the very same Jim Beaver who played Bobby Singer on our beloved Supernatural. 
He is also known for recurring roles on Deadwood, Justified, Breaking Bad, and Big Love. Jim Beaver is a screenwriter, film historian, and a playwright with 15 plays to his credit. Huh. He is considered to be a George Reeves biographer as he started researching George in 1979. I find it fascinating that Jim, may I call you Jim, uh, <laughs> has written a biography on John Garfield, a memoir of his own, and eight magazine articles about actors such as John Wayne, Steve McQueen, and Jimmy Stewart. And despite that, he hasn't officially written anything about George Reeves. He said he started to research the biography in 1979. He made mention of working on it in 1983 and mention of still working on it in 2002. I only bring this up because it's surprising to me that without a book or a documentary or anything to back it up, he's just automatically seen as the George Reeves biographer. So much so that Jim acted as a biographical and historical consultant on the movie Hollywoodland. And I'm not doubting what Jim may or may not know. I just know, how long can you read about someone before you're considered a biographer? Because at this point, I'm pretty sure I'm a Keanu Reeves biographer. <laughs> I will say, I was jazzed when Jim Beaver popped up in a George Reeves documentary. It was just a really pleasant surprise. And he was young and very nervous on camera, which was nice to see. Cute. So Jim Beaver believes the theory that George took his own life. Jim believes that George took such good care of the gun that it was oiled up, which he claims accounts for the lack of fingerprints. Jim also suggested that George held the gun upside down, which would account for the position of the shell casing. And as much as I want to side with Bobby Singer, I just have a hard time believing George was would purposely hold the gun upside down. Jim Beaver also claims the lack of GSR, if I may, on George's body caused people to jump to the wrong conclusion. He said, quote, The absence of powder burns raises a question in a lot of people's minds because most people have a misconception about powder burns. They believe the powder burns happen when a weapon is placed against the skin. That's not the case. When the weapon is placed against the skin, the powder goes into the wound and does not burn the outside of the skin. Which goes against pretty much everything I'd always heard and read about. But he's the biographer. I do not have that as my title anywhere. Maybe I should, but not the point. Regarding the theory of suicide, most claim that George was upset because he wasn't getting any work, or at least it was the main excuse that Leonor came up with. But from what I've read, George was tentatively scheduled to start filming a movie in Spain in September 1959, not to mention the fact that Kellogg's allegedly agreed to pay for another season of The Adventures of Superman, which would be filming soon and would air in 1960. If that's true, even though it would force George to don the tights once again, it was still work. So to me, it's crazy to say he killed himself because he wasn't getting work when he had work lined up. 
but I guess some could say finding out he was going to be Superman again might have been too much for him, and it caused George to take his own life. But I just don't buy it. In the end, the police report lists George's death as suicide, and all the headlines the next morning read, Superman kills self. So not a lot of people were challenging the coroner's findings. Some have even suggested that George was having a midlife crisis, and then he couldn't keep up with the party house lifestyle any longer. And while I might agree about the midlife crisis, because he did end a near-decade-long relationship for a woman he barely knew, but if George really wanted to end things with Leonore, there was nothing stopping him. And if he was distraught over losing Tony, as some have suggested, I truly believe she would have taken him back. No questions asked. Should she have taken him back if he tried? Of course not. If after everything you've done for him, he drops you the second someone younger comes along because you're suddenly having insecurities about who you are, he doesn't deserve you. And to that I say, being dumped after a decade for someone who is a seen as a better catch than you is exactly what your ex-wife did to you, George. Grow up. <laughs> I got really passionate there, I guess. I like it. Uh, so if George went crawling back, should Tony have taken him back? Of course not. But, and I have nothing to base this on because I'm not a biographer, but I guarantee she would have said yes. Well, also, I mean, they were obviously very open. They had a non-traditional relationship. So yes. it may not, it may not have honestly, it may not have bothered Tony that much. Legit. She might've been like, okay, you did your thing. You, you saw this other person and- now you want to come back to me? Like, you know what I mean? Like, legit, it may not have even been that big a deal, given that they had what would definitely have been considered at the time to be non-traditional. Yeah. Um, it may have also, you know, for her, it sounds mostly like she just really didn't want to lose him. Now, again, it's interesting because you have, obviously, you've said had a jealous streak, and that doesn't compute with that kind of lifestyle, um, lifestyle now, but... Um, yeah, I, I feel like I, I honestly feel like she would have taken him back in a heartbeat happily, yes. but like but like without without damaging herself. Like, I feel like she was. Yeah, I feel like the the insecurities that were there, that's another issue. But in terms of like, would it have really upset her what he did? I don't know. Like if again, like she was also married to a man and living with some, with with him. You know what I mean? So I feel yeah. like her brain may not have even gone the, to the place that she, he had deeply wronged her. Oh, yeah. Everything that people came up with as a reason as to how they explained why he would just do that out of nowhere, I just don't buy any of them because yeah, I just don't. I, he hadn't lost her forever. If he just called her up, she would have been there immediately. Yeah. Knowing her, she might have already been outside the house waiting for him anyway. So like, you know, <laughs> like she was, she wanted him back more than anything. So it's like, I don't, all you had to do was be like, ah, I'm out with this one. I want you to move back. And Leonore would have, she would have put up a fight. But you can't tell me that Eddie Mannix couldn't have made her leave. You know, absolutely. So, I mean, money talks too, right? Like, yes. And look, I don't want to like get too into my theories or whatever too early, but sure. I just won't circle back to this one later. I will also just say very quickly, like, obviously, we never ever know what's going on with someone internally, and that of there's lots of people who have talked about 
having loved ones who seemed completely happy and normal and fine, and then unfortunately do take their lives. Right. Um, so there is sometimes that factor of not knowing what the internal, you know, of struggle course. truly is, and that it can't necessarily be attributed to anything. Yes. But, but, <laughs> I will also just add that the, the it was atypical to that, to like, there's a party going on at your house to go and get naked and kill yourself. Like, not to be crass, but like, that's also like not the typical MO for people who are really struggling with ideation and and unfortunately do, you know, act on it um, from a, any of the reading I've ever done and any of the cases I feel like we've ever covered. It's it's the person is usually ensures that they are alone before they go down that road. There's just something off. It just like feels it, off. Yeah. The fact of how quickly everyone was like, obviously, that's what happened. It's like it's yeah. It's like is it obvious though? Because again, it's just like it's the mo for me that doesn't like like the mo of the night doesn't add up for me. And I understand he was extremely intoxicated. Yes, that could account for holding the gun wrong. That could account for making that choice. But I don't know. Anyway, yeah, I'll, I've I've gotten ahead of myself. Uh, during an interview later in life, Leonor was asked, uh, "Quote: A lot of people don't believe it was really suicide." They think there was something funny going on. And before the interviewer could finish the question, Leonor quickly responds, quote, Do they think I shot him? But you know, I'm not going to sit here and deep dive a single theory, especially when I don't buy it. So if it wasn't suicide, could it have been an accident? Some have suggested that after receiving the news about another potential season of The Adventures of Superman, George started to celebrate a little too hard and later was fooling around with a gun when it went off. The only person that ever mentioned George ever touching a gun prior to his death was Leonore, who claimed that George would sit on the bed and pretend to shoot himself with a gun loaded with blanks. No one else has referenced this, only her. Just pointing that out. Hmm. Uh, again, I don't know how much we can trust Leonore here. Some have suggested that maybe someone switched the blanks in the gun for real bullets and that George was unaware, but I just can't get past the pesky fact that there were no fingerprints on that gun. <laughs> yes, some claim the gun was recently oiled so no fingerprints would be present, but even that I'm not buying. Am I a gun expert? Hell no. Am I a criminologist? <laughs> nope. <laughs> Am I a wannabe detective who has a fairly trustworthy internal alarm bell system? Hell yes. <laughs> and since we're talking accidents, let's remember that according to William Bliss, Leonore was upstairs at the time of the gunshot. So what if, and I'm speculating here... George was upset about the impromptu party, and Leonor got mad at him for being rude to the guests. They fought, as they were known to do. A gun came out, there was a scuffle, the gun went off. It would also explain William's claim that Leonor came running downstairs saying, tell them I was down here. And yes, we can't say for sure if Leonor actually said that or not, but William barely knew the couple, so what motive would he have for lying? 
all I know is the police weren't called for nearly an hour, which is plenty of time to stage a scene to suit whatever narrative you want. Again, I like to look at all angles. So if it wasn't suicide and it wasn't an accident, yeah, then are we talking murder? murder? <laughs> well, what motive would someone have to kill George? Maybe Leonor was only ever after his money, and since she saw the money running out, she took a chance to cash in before it was too late. But if she was going to do that, why wouldn't she have waited until they were legally husband and wife? Or at least double-check what her status was in the will before doing something so drastic. Honestly, I just might be naive here. But I think if Leonor was involved in any way, it was an accident. Leonor knew that George's money mostly came from Tony. So killing George would get her nothing, especially if they weren't married. Yeah. So despite the fact that I've read that Leonor had connections to the mob in New York and Jimmy Hoffa, of all people. Wow. And you know I love any excuse to bring the mob into this. Yeah. What? benefit does Leonor get from killing George? Just because I don't believe that Leonor had a motive doesn't mean that no one had a motive. What about Tony Mannix? She was devastated after their breakup. It was said she locked herself in her bedroom for weeks and cried all the time. Is it possible she heard about George's alleged upcoming nuptials and snapped? especially when she gave George so much and he was supposed to marry her and now he's marrying a woman 17 years younger than her, she would have been enraged. And I'm not suggesting that Tony herself killed George, but she was married to Eddie Mannix, who was a fixer known for dealing with stuff like this. Not to mention Eddie's own connections. He was friends with Bugsy Siegel for crying out loud. Oh my god. Or is it possible that Eddie, who lo- who was completely devoted to his wife, even though he was a serial cheater, uh, couldn't stand to see Tony so distraught over George, so he had George killed for hurting Tony. Eddie was very protective over her, so I wouldn't be surprised. But at the time, Eddie's health was failing, so it's more likely that Eddie would have hired someone to do the job for him. And since someone, some believe that Eddie was responsible for making other famous deaths look like suicides, a.k.a. director Paul Byrne, it's not out of the realm of possibility that he might try and do it again. I am, of course, speculating because we don't have any concrete evidence that links Eddie to any crime, especially murder. Now, in 1999, a publicist named Edward Lozzi claimed that Tony made a deathbed confession to a priest in front of Lozzi that she and Eddie had George Reeves killed. Lozzi oh. claims, yeah, Lozzi claims that Tony was so scared of going to hell that she wanted to make things right before she died. They were told not to tell anyone about the conversation or their lives would be in danger. And since Eddie's goons were dead by 1999, it was finally safe for Lozzie to come forward. And while I want to believe that, if it was true, why wouldn't everyone be screaming it from the rooftops? 
Not to mention, you have this info that you could supposedly solve a mysterious death from 40 years before, and you chose to share that information with extra? Not the police or any sort of investigator, not even a news outlet. Lazi chose an entertainment show, which makes him feel less credible to me for some reason. Yeah. And I know that some of our dear listeners might be wondering, if George was murdered, were there any signs leading up to the alleged crime? And to that I say, yes. Oh. In the last few months of George's life, George experienced a series of misfortunes. In late 1958, while driving on the Hollywood freeway, George's vehicle was sandwiched between two large trucks. He slammed on the brakes and slid to the side of the road. The trucks allegedly just drove off. A few weeks later, while driving near his home, another large truck tried to drive or tried to run George's vehicle off the road. Whoa! In December 1958, just before Christmas, a black sedan allegedly tried to hit George while he was standing in front of his own house. Despite those numerous close calls, George never seemed worried that anything was wrong. But the misfortunes kept going. George had a beloved dog named Sam, a schnauzer, who was in the car with him during one of these accidents and ended up losing an eye. But he loved that damn dog. Mm. On January 22nd, 1959, Sam was taken from the front seat of George's convertible. George left Sam in the car while he stopped in at a store on Vine Street to buy a razor. When he came out, Sam was gone. George was devastated. It was said that Sam was very loyal and wouldn't go to just anyone. But since the dog would be quite familiar with Tony because they would have lived together for nearly a decade, is it possible that Sam would willingly go to her? Tony did admit to stalking George at times. Maybe she saw Sam was left alone and took advantage of the situation. Friends believed that Tony took the dog, although they never saw him at Tony's house. Multiple friends did claim to hear a dog barking when they were on the phone with Tony. Interesting. Was, was it Sam? I don't know. Was there really a dog in her home at that time? I don't know. But Tony allegedly not only took the dog, but also then had him put to sleep so no one would find out. So if it's true, I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if she did it just to spite him. Jesus. Yep. Then, because still going... In April 1959, just two months before his death, George's new Jaguar convertible ran into a light pole about half a mile or 0.8 kilometers from his home. As George was speeding down the winding road, he discovered that his brakes weren't working. He eventually lost control of the vehicle and ran into the pole. George was suffered a mild concussion as well as a five-inch cut on his forehead after being thrown through the windshield. It is said that the cut required 27 stitches. According to the mechanic who inspected the car after the wreck, the brake fluid had been drained. Otherwise, the car was in perfect working order. 
Wow. Now, is it possible that Eddie Mannix had someone on his payroll that could make accidents happen? Well, some have suggested that's what happened to Eddie's ex-wife. Remember Bernice Fitzmorris from earlier in our story? She was married to Eddie, and after tiring of years of cheating and alleged abuse, Bernice petition- petitioned for divorce. But being Catholic, Eddie did not believe that divorce was ever an option. But before the divorce could be finalized, Bernice died in a mysterious car accident. So what happened to Bernice? Well, apparently one night in November 1937, Bernice was out drinking and gambling at the Dunes nightclub in Palm Springs. The club's owner... Al Wertheimer, a well-known Detroit mobster, offered to drive Bernice home. He spotted a tow truck stopped in the middle of the road helping another vehicle. So Al swerved around the truck, lost control of the vehicle. He was thrown from the vehicle. The car flipped multiple times and Bernice was crushed to death. Oh, God. Now, am I suggesting that the tow truck was staged and that Eddie hired Al to make it look like an accident because he was thrown from the vehicle and she wasn't? I guess that's what I'm saying. (laughs) But Al was also hurt in the crash, so maybe he wasn't specifically involved. But of course, it's more than possible it was just a tragic accident. After all, despite how my gut feels, coincidences do happen. Was Eddie upset over Bernice's death? Yes. Did he also move his girlfriend Tony into the house almost immediately afterward? Also yes. So I'm just speculating that maybe Eddie knew some people who could make certain things that weren't accidents look like accidents. Eddie was also known to be a personal friend of William Parker, who just so happened to be the police chief at the time. Parker gave in to public pressure and asked that a second autopsy be done for George Reeves, but once the results came back, he refused to ever reopen the case again. So is it possible he paid people, whether they be cops or medical examiners or whatever, to look the other way, stamp it a suicide and just move on? In a world where anything is possible, I don't see why not especially when the police didn't photograph the scene or properly question the witnesses and the body went to a funeral home instead of a morgue and the first person to examine the body was a junior medical examiner who took only two photographs and then those photographs went mysteriously missing? It's also said the police allowed Leonor to wash the bloody sheets without police even examining or testing them first. Leonor claimed that a friend of hers tossed them all in the shower so that Leonor wouldn't see the blood before she came upstairs. And to that I say, if someone you supposedly love, no, scratch that, if someone died in your bed and there was blood on your sheets, throw them out. That's not a moment to be stingy and try and save a buck. Buy new sheets. Just do it. Like, that's... Yeah. I, I don't know why that was my hang-up in this, but it was. Yeah. But whether or not this actually happened, Leonor is trying to suggest that she absolutely wasn't upstairs at any point before the police arrived. And I do not buy that even a little. 
I would also love to see the crime scene photos just to see the placement of everything. Because at this point, we're going based off of hearsay because, again, no photos were taken. I don't know if I'm just putting on a tinfoil hat, but it doesn't add up to me. I have thoughts, and I know that the judge has some as well. But before we get into our thoughts about what we think happened to George Reeves, I just want to give an update on the various people in his life, just to see what happened to them after George's death. Because you know I like to give give stories as much of an ending as possible. Of course. George's mother, Helen, had him buried in the gray suit that was used when he was Clark Kent on The Adventures of Superman. His tombstone reads, My beloved son, Superman, George Basolo Reeves. And it just makes me so sad that he was trying to be seen as something other than Superman. And not only does his mother put it on his tombstone, but she dresses him in the costume linked to that character. He was your son, Helen, before he was Superman. For some reason, I'm very sensitive about that. Either way, the old bag died June 19th, 1964. (laughs) No disrespect to her. I'm just irritated that not once but twice she had to be like, hey, oh, your dad? Oh, yeah, he killed himself. Oh, no, that guy? Oh, yeah, I lied. He's alive. And he wasn't your dad. Oh, your real dad? No, he did kill himself after he met you. And then it's like, did he ever find out that that wasn't true? I mean, Helen. Yeah, no disrespect to the old bag. <laughs> <laughs> What's she going to do? She's dead. Yep. Uh, in his will, George left his assets, which were worth approximately $71,000, to Tony Mannix. Mm. Leonor and his mother, Helen, received nothing. Leonor attempted to claim a share of the estate, but she was unsuccessful. I didn't mean to say that so cheery, but I did. A funeral was held about two weeks after George's death. Only about 20 close friends attended the service. Neither Leonor nor Tony was in attendance. Eddie Mannix died from a heart attack on August 30th, 1963. He left everything to Tony. It was said that Tony Mannix was devastated by the death of George Reeves, For the rest of her life, Tony kept George's clothing hanging in her closet, and she even built a shrine to him in her home, which consisted of candles, a crucifix, and an 11 by 14 picture of George, which seems very specific of a size. Uh, Tony died December 27th, 1983, after developing Alzheimer's. She was buried next to Eddie. And what about Leonore Lemon, George's supposed fiancé? Well, less than two days after George's death, Leonore left California and never went back. Before she left, though, she broke into the crime scene and took $4,000 worth of traveler's checks from George's bedroom. Whoa. She, She claimed they were meant for the honeymoon, but we don't know that. But how much do we trust Leonore? Honestly, not much. She (laughs) claims that at the time of George's death, he wasn't on any medication at all, and that he was, quote, normal as blueberry pie, which I don't believe is an expression, but okay. 
I think there's uh, more normal pies, too. Yes, I, I agree. Uh, but we know he was on medication from one of the car accidents that he was involved in prior to his death. He was on painkillers. It was very well known he was on painkillers. And she, like, trying to hide it seems, what you doing? After George's death, Leonore returned to New York, where she started a relationship with a married theater agent. When the relationship ended, Leonore allegedly turned to sex work to pay her bills. When asked her thoughts about George's death, Leonore said, quote, Absolutely normal man, just threw the towel in, that's all. Nothing complicated and no depressions, no downs. Good guy, really a good guy. But he could not get a job and directors loved him, producers loved him. They'd come over for dinner. They'd say, we can't case you, George. That Like, that's just so everywhere for me. Like, she was all over the place. And also the fact of... This is the same interview she said he was normal as blueberry pie. It's how many times she had to drive home the point he was just normal. He was just a normal guy. This was just a thing that happens to normal people. Like, it was just weird to me. Yeah. Again, do we trust her? Not no. really. Especially when she just kept repeating how normal he was. And again, repeating is not a great sign in the world of truth telling. No. And then there was the moment. When the same interviewer asked what Leonor would say to George if he was there right now, she said, quote, I'd shoot him for being such a horse's ass. That was a very, very normal straight guy. He just threw the towel in, just could not get a job. Again, oh boy. Uh, this interview was done in May 1989. So it's more than possible that Leonor wasn't 100% mentally at right. the time. Yeah. She, she died from alcohol-related dementia in January 1990. Her body was found in her apartment on January 4th, 1990. Her time of death was calculated as being about five days prior. Mm. George Reeves was described as a quiet, honest, gentle, and giving man. He was charismatic, thoughtful, and sensitive. And while some say, some say he had struggles with alcohol and he was kind of an asshole to Tony, nobody's perfect. I'm not saying that George was a hero, but he did spend the last almost decade of his life trying to bring joy to children. Full disclosure, I was going to try and take the tagline from The Adventures of Superman, which is truth, justice, and the American way, and spin it into some sort of like, oh, I hope the truth comes out and that justice is served. But at this point, whether it was an accident or outright murder, the guilty party is no longer living, which is super depressing to think about and feels like a terrible way to end my notes. So I'm going to add a super quick bitter end side note. On October 17th, 2021, so up to date, DC, who currently owns the rights to Superman, has decided to change the mantra. Now Superman will fight for, quote, truth, justice, and a better tomorrow. Interesting. I like that it's like, let's distance ourselves from America <laughs> in the grand scheme of the world. That's but, interesting. Yeah. Uh, but now, if I'm going to end this, it only seems fitting 
that I end this with a quote about George Reeves from the George Reeves biographer, Jim Beaver, who said, quote, There are a lot of talented people who can't do what George did in that role, and that is to connect on a personal level with the audience. And I think that is his legacy. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails, I'm your bag, Christy. <laughs> and what a bag. What a beautiful bag. Um, wow. Okay. I've got so many things I want to talk about. I cannot wait to get into it. Let's take a quick break. Refresh your drink. Hit the loo. And we're going to come right back and give you our thoughts on George Reeves on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Of course, we are talking about George Reeves. And I should have had my notes prepped. You're going to hear the papers rustling and shuffling, but I did at least take them in order, which is something I've really grown with over the past few episodes, because before they were chaotic, and now they're in more of a list, which feels nice. Um, You're doing great. Thank you so much. So much to talk about here. Oh, I can't. I don't even know where to begin. Um, I mean, the suicides, I, or rather, his mother, in painting that picture about both of his both his stepfather who he thought was his bio dad and his bio dad yeah i do think it's interesting the possibility that what leonor was saying could be true that was he interested or did he have a kind of fixation on a gun with blanks did he have this fixation on suicide because this was such a you know obviously building block sadly of his his childhood and his upbringing and all of those kinds of things does that feel if i have my psychologist hat on does that feel impossible to me no no does that make me feel like that's 100% what happened just based on that of course not but i do just think it's it's interesting to note that i could see um someone developing a kind of fascination with suicide given that element of their childhood yeah um, that, again, doesn't mean that they would ever act on it, but, again, it doesn't seem insane. Isn't it interesting that he was with Leonor and then his first wife was Eleonora? Those felt like very similar names to me. Yeah. Th yeah that's there's, there. Well, also, uh, Tony's real middle name is Bernice, and Eddie's wife before her was Bernice. 
Interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Now, I do think it's interesting that he did that movie in 1943. Of course, he was playing the um, military man, the injured yeah. military man, and then he decided it, it inspired him to enlist. And then he didn't really get to do what he wanted to do in the sense that, you know, he got, you know, recognized and then kind of was making the training videos and all those kinds of things. Yeah. But it is interesting that in three years, the scope of Hollywood had changed so much, which I don't deny. I do think that that makes complete sense and that all of his studio contracts have kind of let him go. I wonder what regret he had about that choice. Did he have regret about that choice? Because if he had just stayed continuing on under those contracts, who knows, right? Um, And to go from that to digging cesspools feels also like just such a kind of – um, disparity that I'm yeah. sure that that feels stressful as well. But again, connecting this through to the end, the suggestion that he was so overwrought that he didn't have any work, but he hadn't gone back to, to digging cesspools as far as we know at that point in his life. Correct. So if we're using that as kind of a personal benchmark for him, which I am speculating wildly, but you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know that he was at rock bottom. And I'm not saying that the cesspools were rock bottom for him. I don't think that they were. But my point is, is that I just don't think that it was rock bottom. I think that he has shown that when times got tough, he was like, well, this is a job I can do. I know that people want people always need it done. And I'm going to offer it at a discount because I know that that'll make me competitive and I'll do that till I get work. That's just a mindset of somebody that doesn't seem to 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 jive with, oh, I haven't booked any work for so long. I I can't go on. Do you know what I mean? It just Agreed. Now, granted, he was on medication at the time. Could that have altered his mindset? Of course it could have. Can people obviously have lows? Of course. But again, we're just trying to piece together the, the facts that we do have. Um, Eddie, uh, the idea again that like the deal was that as soon as Eddie died, Tony and George would get married, like that that was everybody knew that that was the deal is wild to me. You yeah. know what I mean? Like that it's like we're just running out the clock like that is OK. Um, and the fact that, again, that George was so loyal to her even through it all, it's it's again, it's it's it is an it is a non-traditional relationship, even in the sense of what we now know as, you know, polyamorous relationships, et cetera, because it really did feel like Tony only wanted to be with George. Um, yep. It feels like she would have been tolerant of, again, I believe she would have been tolerant of what happened with him and Leonore. I don't think that she would have really cared in the end of the day. But it's just interesting to me because it's not like, you know, it's not a traditional, non-traditional relationship, if that makes sense. (laughs) Sure. Um, Which I think is interesting. Um, I just wrote down, Atari game. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, the fact that she visited his set every day with lunch, like, again, like, these details, it just feels, again, like this woman really loved him. And it's interesting because it's like, did he really love her? Who knows? I mean, I guess we'll never know. But this is a woman who is obviously um, making herself extremely available, giving him anything he wanted and more, giving him these elaborate gifts. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's setting up an unfortunate dynamic, I feel like, because she was setting herself up for such a fall. You know, yeah. investing literally and figuratively so much in this man that, yeah, I'm sure she did spiral when it 
when it ended. You oh, know? yeah. It's interesting to me, again, um, you know, when, when you start to talk about him complaining about being typecast, and I understand that that was a, that's still a thing, but I understand that was a big thing back then, of course. But then I just wrote down, it's better than digging cesspools, and which I followed up with, you didn't live long enough for it to turn around. Because I understand that as a concept, and I understand that there are some actors who they play one of those parts, and then they just can't break out of it. I get it. It happens. Yeah. For sure. But it's also like sometimes what has to happen is there just needs to be a break of time, that there needs to be, you know, a few years where you kind of lay low or you don't really do much or you're not working, and then you sure. just need that one role that's something else that brings you back, you know, and it's about having the patience and it's about also saving your money when you're on your show so that when you have your breaks, you're okay. But I understand yeah. that not everybody does that. And obviously also I feel like he was he was also living a – he was used to a standard of living that he was being afforded because of Tony. So I can yes. also understand that that could have been, you know, part of it too. Now, didn't – and I'm so sorry if you said this. I was very frazzled by the dogs. <laughs> didn't Tony – kind of puppeteer him getting the Superman role as well? Or was that I kind of just made know. up in Hollywood land? I I think he was potentially given more of a shot because of her, but I think he got it on his own merit. Right. But she definitely like had Eddie or somebody put a word in for him. She must have. She must have. She must have. Um the fact that she kept paying all of his bills after they had broken up. Yeah. You know, uh, again, I, I'm going to say it, Tony, I, I, if you hadn't potentially put that dog down, I would have had a lot more respect for you. I would have potentially, <laughs> potentially wanted to put you in a blanket. But if the dog thing is true, I don't know. No blankets for you. <laughs> no blankets for you. Um, the timing is interesting to me that it's three days before they're set to get married. The thing that comes up for me, that came up for me again and again and again was, I just feel like, is it possible that Tony was like, I, if I can't have him, no one can. Eddie, fix this for me. And that he hired this William character to go in there and get it done. That's, the, that's what came, the fact that it was three days before this wedding yeah. I don't know. I mean, that's, again, something that – I'm not saying that I, that's my theory, but I'm saying that just kept coming up for me. I was like, doesn't it feel like that's possible? But anyway. Um, I loved all – I wrote down all of the things in the Superman curse, but I'm, I'm not going to go into any of them because I'm trying to get through this in a, you know, timely manner. So, sure. What a joke. Um, it's also interesting to me that he had, he had gone to bed. He came downstairs. He was like, you're being too loud, but he had a drink. This is, again, the, the story that we're, again, we're trusting these right. people to tell. Yeah. And then his blood alcohol level was a 0. 0.27. Yeah. So either he was very intoxicated going to bed and then yeah. continued, or he was drinking way more than they let, it, let on, or he had never yeah. gone to bed in the first place, which I also think is possible. Yeah. We can't there trust. Was, there was also one point where Leonor claimed he went to bed and- they never saw him until they heard the gunshot. So she claims at one point he never even came downstairs. So her story was changing. Yep. Yeah, because that's something that innocent people do. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. 
I just feel like there's so many parts of that that just don't track to me. Like, it just doesn't make sense. And the fact that we're basing all of this on a group of people who did not call the police for an hour after the gunshot. Yeah. How can we trust anything that they say to be true? We're, we're piecing together a story that could be completely false from the yeah. beginning. For all we know, they tied into a chair and poured alcohol down his throat. We don't know. I'm not yeah. saying that they did that, but you know what I'm saying? Like, we don't know at all what happened in that house that night. The no. only people that do are the people that are there that, to your point, have all passed now, I'm I'm sure. Yeah. Um, you know, it just feels like something is up. And again, the detail that it's like, the detail that, the, that Carol was having sex with someone in another room while all this was going on. So let me get this straight. She heard the gunshot and didn't stop the encounter? Like whoever, I, like, well, like you know what I mean? on how good the encounter is. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it, yeah. the timing doesn't make sense for them to say, like, you need a full hour to get dressed and get yourself together and get out after this gunshot. I don't know about you, but again, if, if you're, if, if something happens when you're in flagrante delecto, uh, another you. clue reference, um, you can probably get your clothes on and get out of a house pretty darn quick. I don't think you need a full hour. You know, I don't Ag trust that agreed. That, that was anything. Um, but also, like, are you, why did she have to leave? Because you didn't want to admit she was there with somebody? It was an odd number of people anyway. Yeah. So it could have just been like, she stopped by, he was already here. All you have to do is, we've called the police, get dressed. Right. But it's it just feels like that much time. It's like, if your only excuse is that you decided you want to make sure she's, you know, dressed and out so that her husband never finds out. That does not take an hour unless you were letting them finish. Right. And then also. And like, even that doesn't take well, an hour. Yeah. No, no, you know, shade to William. I'm sure he was great. Well, if so, kudos, uh, congrats. But also, like, yeah. if you can, I don't know, if you can keep going for an hour after a man <laughs> has died in the same house, like, I don't know. I, again, we're that's, taking a turn that... That's next mm -mm, level, yeah. It feels like something else. Um, again, the details of where the body was taken, the details of all of that feel like this is a setup on mm -hmm. some level. Whether it was a setup to begin with or whatever happened, happened... And then someone was called who was had some connection to, you know what I mean? That that like the cleanup feels definitely like somebody else was involved. Um, the one thing that came to mind to me with the nude, the nude factor was re the Rebecca Zahau case. Remember, we got into that whole thing where it was like, why would she have waited until she was fully nude to commit suicide? Yeah. And that never tracked with any of us, remember? Or with any of us, with you or I. Or, or with the, I was talking about the, the people we saw in the documentary, but yes. you know what I mean? Like, it was like, that didn't feel right. That it was, and we when the, they got into her culture and her family and all of those things, that didn't seem like it made sense that she would wait until she was getting out of the shower and then publicly hang herself. Um, and then the other thing that came to mind about the shell casing being under him was, of course, a death in Oslo. From from the first season of our right. show, where it was like she was apparently having to hold the gun upside down, and there was and that with a pillow and that whole thing, and it's like that just feels like first of all, you know, and then and then you'll love this bringing in Kurt Cobain when we talk about blood alcohol levels and stuff like that. At yeah. what point is your are you so intoxicated that you're not going to be able to properly hold a gun at all? 
You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. to me, again, there's a lot of there's a lot of factors in that bedroom that make no sense. What was going on with his clothes, guys? Is it possible? I'm gonna go there for a second. Is it possible that there was some sexual element going on? A group thing? I don't know. We already know that why not. people have been alluding to Carol and this other guy having sex. Is it possible yeah. that they were all in some sort of group thing? That's why George was naked. He either didn't want to continue or whatever. There's an argument. Is it possible there was some sort of group sex thing? Somebody pulls a gun out for role play or for, you know what I mean? For whatever reason, either yeah. there's a struggle or somebody's like, safe word, I'm not cool with this. It, you know what I mean? It goes off and then they panic and they're like, what do we do? And that's what takes the hour is going, how do we cover up this sex party that went wrong? How do we cover up the fact that we were having group sex and then someone wanted to take it up a notch by, in, 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 uh, you know, inviting a gun into the scene and people were uncomfortable? Because in the 1950s, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, that would be a tough one to sell to the police or to, you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. I mean, there's also the fact that some people say Carol was boning Robert. Some say that Carol was boning William. So it's like. Did people just get confused because she was boning everyone? Is it possible also that the two gals, because wasn't it, it it's um, Leonore and Carol and then the two men and then George? Yep. Is it possible that the that Carol and Leonore and the two men were were having some relations and George walked in on that? And then he was like, I'm not going to be, you know, you're not going to do this to me in my own home. Gets naked and tries to get involved, but is so intoxicated that he can't. Is that is that a possible factor? Again, I just feel like that the clue of him being naked is is being is something that I think has much more weight. But again, there's no investigation that's ever been done into this crime, so I, I, I can't say that the detectives should have been looking at it because the detectives didn't look at anything. But if there was that, to me, there's something there that I think that there's another layer to. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, again, you mentioned that he may have had work coming up. Who knows? Um, again, I don't know. It's it's again when you also know that Eddie has mob ties and stuff like that. It feels like that could be. It it just feels overall like there's so, oh this is the other thing I was going to mention though. So Eddie's first wife with that car wreck, and you were talking about how that guy Al was driving her home, and the, could was the, was the whole thing staged? And you were like, yeah. but he he was thrown, he was injured. My question is, how much was he paid? Because I'm sure, as we all know, everyone has a price, and if part of the deal was, hey, you need to make it look like it's an accident, you need to hurt yourself, and we will make it worth your while. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, again, I don't know how hurt he was. I don't know if that's true or false. But again, I just feel like everyone has a price and these people were exceptionally wealthy. So who knows, right? It's true. Um, and to that, I would also say, do we know he was thrown from the car? Were there eyewitnesses? Were there eyewitnesses to witness everything that happened? Or is the fact that there's a police chief friend involved in the mix? Now, granted, I know this happened outside Palm Springs. It would be a different jurisdiction. But go with me. Yeah. Is it possible that Eddie's friend, the, the chief of police, is friends with the Palm Springs police and was like, you're going to turn the other way or we're going to make it look like whatever. It's more than possible. 
right? We're not exactly saying, I, I mean, again, I don't know what the extent of this guy's owl's injuries were. So uh, it's a wild speculation. But again, to me, it's just like in this world where we're only operating on people's, uh, you know, testimonies. Yeah. I just offer the alternative. Um, Again, I just feel like it's all of it's so sad, obviously, and in, in so many different ways. I think him being buried in his Clark Kent suit with the Superman on the gravestone, I agree with you, is so sad because it felt like that was something that was, you know, uncomfortable for him or whatever. But, you know, we also are basing that on what other people were saying. And perhaps he would have actually been fine with that. Perhaps actually at the end of the day, it would have been like, you know what, that is my legacy. I'm proud of the work I did and I'm proud of the difference I made for kids who knows, you know, but sure. at the end of it, I honestly think my ultimate theory is sex party gone wrong. Who knows to what extent? Who knows, you know, but I mean, sure. for all we know, they moved a body. He could have been killed somewhere else. There was no investigation done of the of the body of the house. So how are we to know? Well, we can only know as much as the police know. And they don't seem to know a lot in this. Or they don't seem to be being effusive with communicating that they know anything. It's just a suicide and that's it. Yeah. They so. seemed pretty okay with that. As just like, oh, yeah, well, that explains it all then. All right. Well, next case. Like they were okay with moving on and that. And if there's one thing that we like on this show. Yeah. It's, it's justice. And that is a severe injustice which i yes which is also why i was gonna try and go for because (laughs) we're looking for the truth because we want justice for a better tomorrow there it is (laughs) i was that's where i was uh gonna go but it just it just didn't work i really liked i don't know i'm also in just an odd headspace so well, Who listen, knows? I thought yeah. that your work was exceptional. I have been so jazzed about this episode since I first told you about who George Reeves was because I didn't know until this past year when I saw Hollywoodland. Um, but thank you so much for your work. I think this was uh, thought-provoking. I think this was enraging. And I, uh, I'm i sad that this is one that I think, to your point, we'll just never know. We'll just never know. Yeah, it's going to be like, how are we... I, I refuse... And that may be me being childish. I refuse to believe suicide in any way. Oh. I think, I I can't believe I don't have something as good as sex party gone wrong. (laughs) Uh, But I I think either Leonor shot him during an, an argument because she shot the gun, you know, a week before and admitted to it. Uh, Or... Eddie or Tony, someone involved with them, had him taken out. I will not ever get past there were no fingerprints on the gun and they went, oh, that's fine. I mean, it makes no sense. And I uh, this oily gun theory, I I just can't. It's it's tough when, you know, I mean... <laughs> Watching him in the documentary that I did, um, where he was just so uncomfortable on camera and trying to show, like, how you would hold the gun upside down to be able to do it. And it was like, but that's, I don't 
think that's a usual thing, is it? And then it just felt so weird that he was like, well, it has to be suicide. And it's like he felt he chose that narrative immediately and then was like, these are I'll build my theories around what I think happened as opposed to look at everything and then try and figure out what happened. It was just he went into it with an obviously that's what happened. And this is why everyone's wrong. And it's like, oh, Bobby Singer. Well, listen, I love that there's a supernatural connection that came organically. What are the chances? Yeah. It brings me a lot of joy. Uh, Christy Oswell, thank you so much for your work, as always. Top-notch milady, to use your quote. I will take the lady. <laughs> I don't get called a lady very often. Well, you should. You well, damn well I, should. I curse like a sailor, so I get it. But, but still, you know, it's nice. It's yeah. nice. So thank you. Well, you're you're damn welcome. Uh, and thank you, dear listeners, for listening to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're so glad that you're here. We're so glad that you listened to the show. If you haven't already, give us a follow on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, at True Crime and Cocktails, on uh, Twitter, at Not Detectives. And uh, if you want a little bit more, you know, you've binged the episodes, you're dying for more. Go over to Patreon, patreon.com slash true crime and cocktails. We have a subscription service where we offer bonus episodes, live monthly Q&As. You could take part in a poll uh, to choose one episode a month that we do on this feed of the show. It is a whole lot of fun, and we really encourage you if uh, if you're interested to join us over there because we have a laugh and a half. And for all official True Crime and Cocktails merch, go to truecrewmerch.com. It is my young child. That I have raised since birth that I love very, very much. Uh, and there's lots of fun holiday stuff in there, including scrunchies, which are amazing. Oh, so I check that out while you can. Now, Christy, do you want to tell uh, the people about next week's episode? Oh, uh, well, I mean, I, I spent a day with it uh, destroying my soul earlier today, so it makes sense. Uh, so buckle up because the next one, the next ones can get dark. Yeah. On the next True Crime and Cocktails, Sophie, a murder in West Cork. This, of course, was our October patrons poll pick. So over there on Patreon, this is the one that was voted on and chosen. This, of course, is going to be a tough one, a real departure from what we did this week and last week, yeah. for example. But we are excited nonetheless. Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Good night, Dave Grohl. Good night, future time-traveling us. 